I'm journalist Carolyn Osorio, and I invite you to join me and my co-host, Brandon Morgan, on our podcast, Criminal Mischief. From law enforcement officers seeking justice to victims' families seeking answers, every week there's a new case and a new victim whose story deserves to be told. New episodes of Criminal Mischief drop every Tuesday. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminal. Settle in. Find a comfortable chair. If you're on a run, it's going to be a long one. Whatever you do while listening to this podcast to drive, I don't know, there's probably going to be a multi-parter unless you're driving somewhere really, really far. Thank you to David who wrote it. It's called Dean Coral, Candyman, Pied Piper, Monster. It's an absolute beast of a script. So uh, let's just jump into it, shall we? If you're new here, the format of the show, I've never read this before. We're going to read it and explore and possibly have our days ruined together. Let's go. This is the story of the so-called Houston mass murders. And hold on to your hats, because it's going to get rough. It was six o'clock in the evening on August the 8th, 1973, in a rundown neighborhood on the outskirts of Houston, Texas. An unmarked police car pulled up to an L-shaped collection of galvanized steel sheds owned by Southwest Boat Storage. Detectives approached boat shed number 11, a storage unit that was 12 feet wide and 34 feet long. The detectives discovered that the shed doors were padlocked shut. One of the detectives walked down the road to the house of Mamie Mayena. Mayena. Sorry, Mamie. <laughs> Brutalized your name. David's even provided me a pronunciation guide. <laughs> it doesn't make it any easier. It's still hard. They were the owner of the storage complex, and the police asked for the key to number 11. Mayena explained that the renters of each shed supplied their own padlocks, and thus she didn't have the keys. The detective asked for permission to break the lock on shed number 11, and Mania gave her consent. The detective returned to where his colleagues were waiting. They used a pair of bolt cutters to remove the padlock and pulled open the doors. Is that allowed? I feel like if you're renting something, it's you who gets to make the decision on whether someone could break into it, no? But I guess I'm wrong because if the police did this and then it turned out that they couldn't, that would really be bad for their day in court. Because then, this is one of those things where it's like, yeah, we know that you're in court. It's like, yeah, we know you're guilty of sin. We know you did it. We found all of those bodies in the boat shed. And then the lawyer will be like, ah, 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 no, you didn't because of the lock. <laughs> and the judge will be like, he goes free. <laughs> Which I know, I know this happens because of like, you don't want the police just busting into everything all the time and there needs to be due process. But it does suck when that happens, doesn't it? Adjusting their eyes to the darkness of the windowless storage unit, they saw a stack of empty cardboard boxes, two acetylene torches attached to large fuel tanks, two 10-pound sacks of lime. I know what sacks of lime are used for. This is for helping to decompose bodies, because this has come up on Casual Criminal several times. Sometimes used to speed up the decomposition of organic material, there we go. Eight empty 20-gallon cans that previously contained emergency drinking water, two empty plastic garbage containers, some cans of spray paint, a roll of soiled carpet, an unconnected telephone, some spare wires, batteries, and sundry tools. At the back of the shed was a half-stripped 1971 Chevrolet Camaro. Jesus Christ, how big was this? Oh, it was 34 feet long and 12 feet wide, so it's a, it's a good size storage unit. It's like, yeah, all this junk and a car which police later found out had been stolen. And on the right side of the shed was a child's yellow bicycle, which fortunately had a serial number on it, allowing the police to quickly confirm by radio that it was the one purchased by the Dramala family, whose 13-year-old son, James, had gone missing five days earlier on August the 3rd. A few feet away from the bicycle was a plastic bag containing a large collection of boys' clothing, a small and medium sizes, some intended for children, 
but with most of the garments intended for teenagers. Oh my god. I'm like those big fat tanks and the lie. Are they people? Oh god, he's dissolving children in barrels. David, why? Why do we have to do this? The detectives have brought with them a 17-year-old witness named Elmer Wayne Henley. He was the first to head into the shed. As Detective Carl Siebenacher later recalled, quote, he started to take a step inside, but then his face just turned ashen, pale, grim. He kind of staggered around just outside the door like he was trying to get himself together. And right then, I just knew there was going to be something inside that shed. I was positive. Why did they send the kid in first? It's like, all right, mate, <laughs> go on in there. It's like, they don't want to clear the room first. It's just like, get in there. Check if it's safe, all right, kid? You find the bodies first. A Houston patrol car arrived containing two more detectives and two prison inmates who, under the Texas trustee system, could basically be utilized by law enforcement as slave labor. Wait, when was this? When was this happening? 1973? You can't use prisoners as slave labor anymore, right? Although I do hear, aren't they like stamping license plates and stuff for like cents an hour? It's like, how do I utilize this? Why aren't, all, why aren't I using prisoners for labor, especially for true crime? <laughs> it's like, you guys want to write about your crimes? It's not a bad idea for a channel. Prisoners who've been found guilty and admitted to their crimes write about their crimes. It's a great YouTube channel. The inmates were put to work, digging into the dirt floor of the shed. After 15 minutes, the prisoners are dug six inches into the ground and come upon a layer of white lime powder. A bad omen. A few minutes later, the stench of rotting flesh pervaded the shed. Shortly thereafter, they uncovered a boy's skull. At this point, one of the inmates was overcome by nausea and bolted for the exit. None of the detectives attempted to detain him. Detective Larry Earls took up the fallen shovel and continued digging with the other inmates. The boy's torso wrapped in a plastic sheet was discovered. After a few minutes, the nauseated inmate returned with another shovel, apologized, and the three men continued to dig. The body had lain there for only a few days, and putrefaction had only recently set in. The boy was blonde in his early teens. He had a cloth rag shoved in his mouth to gag him, held in place by masking tape which had been wrapped around his head. There was also a cord wound tightly around his neck. The detectives immediately concluded that it had been strangled to death. This was the body of 13-year-old James Dramala, who had last been seen riding his yellow bike in the suburb of Pasadena. The three men continued digging. A few inches deeper, they discovered another body, this time the fully decomposed skeleton of another victim. By now, it was getting dark, so some spotlights were brought into the shed in order for the excavation to continue. One of the detectives ran to the patrol car and drove to a nearby jail to pick up even more inmates. They were going to need to dig up every inch of the shed. It was going to be a long night. Meanwhile, Earl and the two inmates began to dig directly to the right of where the first two bodies had been discovered. Eight inches down, they found another layer of lime and two more bodies lying side by side. Both of them teenagers. Both of them gagged. Jesus Christ, this body count is already getting up there. They've just started. One of them had been shot in the head. The other had been strangled with a pull string from a set of Venetian blinds. The latter's mouth was opened so wide that his lips had broken free of the tape adhesive and his teeth were visible above and below the binding, signaling to detectives present that he had died not only struggling for air, but suffering from some other form of torture as he was strangled. The fixed, agonized expression indicated that, if he'd been able to breathe, he would have been screaming. At 10pm, a now enlarged extraction team of multiple inmates and detectives, each with handkerchiefs tied over their faces to ward off the smell of rot, discovered a mass grave in the back right-hand corner of the shed. Four more bodies, this time all in an advanced state of decomposition, were uncovered. Two had been buried in the fetal position, one was lying flat on his back, and one had been buried in an upright sitting position. 
By 11.55 p.m., each of the bodies had been removed from the hole, and the operation was suspended for the night, with eight bodies in total being found. Three of the eight victims, who were the least decomposed, showed signs of their pubic hairs being forcibly ripped out and bite marks on their genitals, but all victims unearthed that night showed signs of intense torture prior to death. They had various large objects shoved inside their rectums, and a few of them had glass rods inserted into their penises before the rods were smashed by blunt force. Dude, we're two pages in. I'm not. This is, this is grim. Excavations continued the next day. At 12.05pm, two skeletons wrapped in plastic were disinterred. The hours dragged on, with the heat of the steel shed in the summer and the smell of thoroughly cooked, putrefied liquid that had soaked into the soil, making it necessary for the excavation team to take frequent breaks for fresh air. One of the detectives kicked in the back wall of the shed until the metal bent upward, creating a hole through which more air could flow. But it made little difference. One by one, detectives and convicts exited the boat shed often to vomit, and then lay down on the ground of the storage facility's small parking lot for several minutes in order to recover. The hot Texas sun was preferable the stench of death inside. Every fall of a shovel increased its potency. By mid-afternoon, two more bodies were unearthed. One had been castrated, with the genitals wrapped in the same plastic sheet in which the body was found. The other had his penis chewed in half. In the late afternoon, in the back corner of the shed, the 1971 Chevy having long since been removed, new more bodies were uncovered. They bore identification cards with the names Donald and Jerry Waldrop, 15 and 13, respectively. They had lain in the ground for two and a half years. Jesus, so this has been going on for a long time. Two more victims were unearthed near the entrance of the shed. One of them was dressed in an American flag swimsuit, a t-shirt with a peace sign on it, and black leather cowboy boots. He had been shot in the head. The ninth and final body for that day was uncovered at 8.30pm in an advanced state of decomposition, showing similar signs of torture to all the other victims. There were two main causes of death. Some of the victims had been strangled with ligatures, some had been shot in the head. However, one of the victims had a caved-in ribcage, indicating that he had been kicked or bludgeoned to death. In total, 17 bodies were found buried in the soft soil of the boat shed. But witness Elma Wayne Henley claimed that there were other burial sites scattered around the area where many more bodies could be found. Wait, is this guy, this guy's got to be, is he going to rank up there for like worse serial killers? Because this is a, this is a, 17 bodies in one location and many more to be found? How have I never heard of this guy? Meet Dean Coral. Dean Arnold Coral was born to newlyweds Mary Emma Coral, maiden name Robinson, and Arnold Edwin Coral on December the 24th, 1939. Dean Coral's father was a 23-year-old factory worker in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and his mother was a housewife of the same age. Dean's father was able to avoid being drafted when the United States entered World War II at the end of 1941. As an essential factory worker, he was further down the list than many of his peers. Then in 1942, Arnold and Mary Coral had a second son named Stanley. And this is where, in most casual criminalist episodes, I'll tell you that the father was a physically abusive drunk. But he was not. The most that could be said against Arnold Coral was that he was unnecessarily dour, joyless, and strict. For example, Dean and Stanley always asked their mother for permission to go out and play because they knew their father would always say no. For another example, when Dean was a toddler, he put his foot in the toilet and then decided to clean himself off by climbing in the sink. No damage, no mess was made, except for a little bit of water splashed on the floor. But Arnold was angry at the aberrant behavior and punished Dean by having him quietly sit in a chair for a couple of hours. For a kid, that's forever! Unusually for the time, Arnold Coral did not use corporal punishments at all. 
Meanwhile, Dean's mother Mary was extremely indulgent and protective of her children, as she delighted in their adorable mishaps. This difference of perspective and temperament was one of the causes of friction in Mary and Arnold's marriage. They divorced in 1946 when Dean was six years old. So far, so normal. As David said, normally it'd be like, oh yeah, no, this is the making of a monster. But it seems, for rather unusually, he had a pleasant enough upbringing. Shortly thereafter, the draft caught up with Arnold Coral. At the age of 30, he entered the United States Air Force, having dodged the Second World War completely. He was shipped out to Memphis, Tennessee. Wait, why would they have 1946? Why are you still drafting people? There's the Korean War in the early 50s, right? Or late 40s? Early 50s? Something like that? But did they need draft for that? Huh, I thought that was just like a big wartime, like Vietnam, Second World War, that kind of thing. This dramatic turn of events sparked a brief reconciliation of Mary and Arnold's relationship. They sold the family home in Indiana, and Mary drove a truck towing a motorhome down to Tennessee to live near the Air Force Base, where Arnold was stationed. However, Mary and Arnold's relationship was not stable, and they were on again, off again for a number of years. Meanwhile, Mary found a job and put Dean into school and Stanley into daycare, later opting to have an elderly farming couple look after Stanley while she was at work instead. Mary claims this time was a happy time for the boys. However, at the exact same time, a six-year-old Dean became withdrawn, isolated, and uninterested in playing with other kids. The most likely cause would be distress at the divorce. More darkly, it can be an early sign of psychopathy. But the latter doesn't completely fit. Dean was capable of socializing when he had to, and of displaying empathy for others. Dean always worried about his younger brother. See, the empathy for others, displaying empathy for others, and capable of socializing, psychopaths can totally do that because they're calculating. And they're like, oh, this is the face that I have to show now. Oh, or like, you know, that kind of sh But like worrying about his younger brother, that speaks not to psychopathy. When Stanley didn't return home from a friend's house on time, Dean would anxiously call Mary at work. He expressed similar concern for Mary herself and would warn her when she was driving too fast. He was just unusually disinterested in making any friendships whatsoever. And some kids are just more introverted like that. It's not necessarily indicative of any major disorder or past trauma. And Dean did not show any other troubling signs, like harming animals. Perhaps the divorce affected Dean, or perhaps his father's non-violent strictness had made him more timid, but there was no known childhood trauma more severe than that, nor any behaviors of Dean's that were major red flags at the time. <laughs> I've said before, like, even if you're horribly abused as a kid, it doesn't excuse you becoming a serial killer. And it's like, oh, why were you a serial killer? My dad was a bit strict. <laughs> it's not okay. Yet, given what Dean Coral would grow up to be, we cannot be too quick to accept the idea that his childhood was relatively normal and happy, or that he wasn't born with some kind of undiagnosed mental illness. It is always possible some red flags stemming from either nature or nurture existed, and neither of his parents noticed them. Young psychopaths can be secretive. Perhaps he was torturing small animals and never got caught. Or perhaps Dean was physically or sexually abused by a teacher or a neighbor and never told anyone. See, this is like when someone is this f***ed up as an adult, I... I I don't know, we've made, I've made so many episodes that it's like, yeah, he was. He probably was. Or is it possible that Mary Coral knew something that she wasn't telling and went out of her way to apply a rose-colored tint to the story of Dean's upbringing when talking to the police and the press, which has impeded analysis by forensic psychologists ever since? I mean, maybe, but we'll never know. Bottom line, if something happened in Dean's childhood to f*** him up, we'll never know what it was. Exactly. What we do know is that Dean's shyness and lack of socialization was exacerbated by physicalness. 
Just a year later, at the age of seven, Dean developed periodic outbreaks of fever and joint pain that went undiagnosed for three years. This restricted his ability to participate in physical activities and made him even less likely to play with other kids and form friendships. <laughs> I know it's a terrible thought, but I'm thinking, yeah, if I was a kid and they're like, oh, you've got the fevers occasionally. It's like, oh no, so I can't go outside in the freezing cold and kick around a ball for two hours? Oh no, I have to stay in the warm? <laughs> I hated sports. We also knew that Dean's parents never bothered to give him a sexual education. We know this because in the summer of 1949, when Dean was nine years old, some neighborhood kids shot out a streetlight. Wait, isn't it the school's, like, this was something we were taught at school. Like, they'd separate the boys and the girls, and then they'd teach us about that stuff. <laughs> That's like part of the curriculum. Dean and Stanley witnessed the vandalism and told the local sheriff about it. As a reward, he gave them two tin deputy badges. This had nothing directly to do with sex, but do bear with me. Yes, I was wondering how this connected. When the boys proudly showed their mother, she flew into a rage and gave the sheriff a piece of her mind about making her two boys into snitches, saying they'd get beaten up. To avoid this, she sent Dean and Stanley to spend the rest of the summer in Indiana on her parents' farm. When Dean returned to Tennessee, Mary Coral just assumed that nine-year-old Dean now knew everything there was to know about sex because he'd presumably seen a bunch of barnyard animals f***ing into, quote, what kind of sex training do you give a boy that's lived on a farm? You don't have to tell him nothing. Okay. <laughs> also, it's weird that you refer to it as sex training. <laughs> like, what the f***? Now drop and give me one push-up. What's a push-up? Maybe they just didn't have sex education in school in the past. Given that Dean Coral turned out to be a closeted homosexual living in the American South in the mid-20th century, and given that his later crimes involved sexual assault, sadism, ephibophilia... Uh, okay. <laughs> Need to look that up. Look up. An adult who is sexually attracted to adolescents. Oh, God. Wait, isn't that just the P word? <laughs> oh, yes, and another word, starting with P and ending in Ophelia. Yes, we have to do this, because otherwise YouTube will never... I mean, YouTube's probably not going to let me get paid for this video. If you want to leave a super thanks, that would be amazing. Help support the show. Don't feel pressure. It's okay if you don't. But yeah, I'm just doing my best to keep us monetized, even though it's highly unlikely. It is possible that this atmosphere of parental negligence and country bumpkin sexual repression did him no favors. Also, it's a bit absurd to expect a nine-year-old who hasn't even felt such impulses yet to have suddenly learned everything there is to know about sex by simply spending a summer watching cattle, poultry, or horses occasionally have sex on a farm. You see, sex is complicated, especially the tumultuous passions of adult human relationships, cultural attitudes towards homosexuality, thorny issues around consent, and, you know, not torturing people for your own monetary sexual gratification. The farmyard, as sex ed, is like saying a nine-year-old could become an expert at painting landscapes by spending a summer at the zoo watching chimpanzees hurl their own shit at the wall, though it may make the kid an expert on the painting techniques of Jackson Pollock. Oh, David reminds me here. This is an ideal place to plug his book. Okay, David, you've got it. David Baker's latest book, Sex, Two Billion Years of Procreation and Recreation, with a foreword by guess who? That's right, me. Uh, this book's fantastic. I read it. I agreed to do the foreword on it. I think David says here it's... Oh, the Australian version came out on the 5th of October. That was ages ago. The American and UK versions will be coming out under the shortest history of sex, which is a different name. I have the Aussie version. Uh, just in time for Valentine's Day. It comes out on the 7th of February. So hopefully, we'll get this edited and live before the 7th of February. Pick up this book from wherever you get your books. It's, uh, it's a great read, especially my forward. <laughs> it's the first time I've written anything in forever. Um, it's a great book. Check it out.
Anyway, it's more likely that Mary Coral simply didn't wish to broach the subject of sex with her son, and the farm provided a convenient, half-assed excuse not to do it. I didn't learn about sex from my parents. I learned about it at school. And then when I was confused about something, I just look it up on the internet. <laughs> you know, easy. It also gives you an idea of the extent of attention and quality of the parenting that Dean was probably getting from his mother, no matter how rosily Mary Coral may have described his childhood subsequently. If there was something seriously wrong with Dean as a child, there's no guarantee that his parents would have noticed it. I mean, just because she didn't want to teach him about sex doesn't mean that she's negligent. In 1950, when I'll <laughs> do the sex training, weird. From now on, I want you to do one push-up a day, every day. In 1950, when Dean was 10, doctors figured out that a heart murmur was causing him to have periodic rheumatic fevers. He was put on medication and advised to avoid physically strenuous activities. He was banned from taking part in gym classes and spent quite a lot of time out of school. They'd be like, Simon, we've got some bad news. You can no longer participate in, well, we call it PE, physical education in the UK. I'd be like, oh no! How you do you guys uh, like mostly Americans because it's a big American audience? Do you do, guys do something called the bleep test? Does does Britain does, do other people in the UK do the bleep test? It's this tape and it tortures you. It's like there's two lines set up in the gymnasium, and you have to run from one to the other. And this machine goes like stage one, boop, and then you have to get to the other side, and then it's like boop, and then you go back, boop, and it gradually gets faster and faster until you die. I mean, not until you die, but it is miserable. And they used to use it to rank us in how good we were. <laughs> I was not very good, but I also didn't care. In that same year, Mary and Arnold remarried and moved the family to Pasadena, a suburb in the metropolitan area of the rapidly growing city of Houston, Texas, where Arnold supported the family and Mary stayed at home. Their second marriage lasted until 1953 when they once again got divorced. We do not know how the tension in their second marriage manifested or whether a now adolescent Dean witnessed any fierce arguments. Again, Mary's account of Dean's upbringing is suspiciously uber-positive and glossed over. But who knows? Maybe it was as faultless as she says. According to Mary, the divorce was amicable. Arnold remained on good terms with her. He continued to be present in his children's lives and he diligently paid child support. Mary seems to have barely had a negative word to say against Arnold. To quote, Some people just don't click. It don't mean they ain't decent people. Not long after the divorce, Mary swiftly got betrothed to a large, handsome traveling salesman named Jake West. Suffice to say, it has never been fully clarified how or when they met. But Mary was a housewife in 1953, and Jake was a traveling salesman. Do the maths. Oh God, what am I missing? Oh, okay, so he's like a traveling salesman. He's like, hello there. <laughs> Did I interest you in a vacuum cleaner and my penis? Sorry, that was crass. Again, forgive the speculation, because we've been deprived of reliable information about Coral's childhood, but if the bubbly and flighty Mary was habitually unfaithful to the dour and joyless Arnold, this might explain the on-again, off-again nature of their 14-year relationship without there being something Arnold did that Mary would speak of about resentfully in later years. And adultery might indicate an instability in Dean's home life that Mary might be reticent to mention. It also might explain the grounds for two divorces in an era before no fault, where you needed to show abuse, adultery, or abandonment in order to obtain one. Man, the past was the worst. It's like, no, we just don't like each other that much anymore. It's like we just grew apart. <laughs> nope. What if you has to adulter? Get on with it. <laughs> but even then, an adulterous parent is a weak causal link to becoming a sexual sadist and a serial killer. Yes, and most importantly, not even anywhere near an excuse. 
He had a great childhood compared to some other people. And that, like Pedro Lopez was horribly abused as a child. Does that make Pedro Lopez any less of a piece of shit? No. <laughs> That's it. No, it doesn't. But it does make him, like, have a tiny fraction of a fraction of not an excuse, but like a path towards it. Like, yes, that nudged him towards there. Whereas Dean just seems like, I guess he's just going to be like a natural psychopath or whatever. Just a natural fucking weirdo. Jake West sold clocks on a route that took him through East Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. As such, Mary and Jake moved with Dean and Stanley to the small town of Vida in Texas, a stone's throw from the Louisiana border. Vida was a backwater full of moonshiners and tax evaders with a population of just 9,000 and a frequent site of rallies by the KKK. <laughs> it's just lawless down there. They're just like, that's the place where the FBI, they don't even go to. <laughs> What's going on in Vida? <laughs> At the time, no black people dared live in the town. Jake went out on the road and earned a decent living so that Mary could be a homemaker. In 1955, Mary and Jake had a daughter named Joyce. As a teenager, Dean Coral got middling grades at school and enthusiastically played trombone in the school band. He also took up skinny dipping with other boys in a quarry pond called the Blue Hole. While we have no information on his sexual awakening, it's more than likely by this time Dean realized his same-sex attraction. Correspondingly, we have no information on whether the realization caused him any emotional distress, but living in backwards East Texas in the 1950s, we can also safely assume that it caused some. None of Dean's schoolmates remember him ever having a girlfriend and forget about them noticing him with boys. Meanwhile, the physical exertion and likely physical excitement of skinny dipping at the Blue Hole wreaked havoc on Dean's heart condition, and after a fainting spell, his doctor told him to give up the activity altogether. Therefore, Dean returned to his solitary ways. Can't they give him drugs for this? It's just a heart murmur. Can't they, like, give him... Did beta blockers or whatever exist back in the day? Is that what beta blockers do? They keep your heart, like, chill, right? So it's always just, bah, bah, bah. And then you're like, I'm really stressed out. Your heart's like, bah, bah. A friend of mine, um, from back in the day was on beta blockers because he had like some some heart thing and he just you just gotta take them for the rest of your life. The Candyman Near the town of Vida, while Pecans Pecans <laughs> David gave me a pronunciation guide for Pecans. I know it's Pecans in American, David, but I'm gonna say it my way. Pecans grew in abundance along the Trinity River. Mary got the idea that the family could harvest them and make candy that Jake could sell on his sales route. The family piled into the car and drove all the way to Houston, Texas, where they visited a candy factory and paid a fee of $50, or $575 in modern money, for the recipe for pralines. Again, David, I know how to pronounce pralines. It's not even different in America. Pralines, it's a common word, isn't it? <laughs> Next, David will be like, car. Car. <laughs> it's like, thanks, David. A confectionery involving pecans, brown sugar, and cream that has a similar consistency to fudge. Wait, I love praline. Is this such an unusual thing? Praline's delicious. The whole cottage industry operated out of the kitchen and garage. Dean was conscripted to keep the machines that clean the pecans running, while Mary did the work of making the actual confectionery in the kitchen. Now I'm pronouncing pecans like an American. I can't stop. Then Dean was in charge of wrapping them. Stanley helped out where he could, but as a young man with a decent social life, he had little interest. Dean would handle the deliveries in Vidor and would pocket the money for himself. His stepfather, Jake, would take the bulk of the pralines with him on his route through East Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi for sale. Soon, the family was no longer harvesting wild pecans, but was purchasing bucket loads of them wholesale from local distributors. The production line soon increased to include Divinities, a pecan and nougat-based confectionery. 
Nougat is one where it's like, it is nougat, right? It's not nugget. It's nougat. But it's got a weird spelling. N-O-U-G-A-T. Based confectionery and chocolate-covered pecans. By all accounts, Dean, not having much of a social life, enjoyed the work. The confectionery business made a lot of money. So much so that in 1958, when Dean was 18 years old, the family moved to the city of Houston and sold their products under the trademark Pecan Prince. Dean finished up his high school degree via correspondence and became a full-time and largely unpaid worker for his mother and stepfather. It was at this point that Dean began to clash with Jake, having several heated arguments, to the point that Jake refused to speak to him. Ostensibly, this was over the business, but there may have been deeper issues involved. In the following year, 1959, the family bought a shop and a small factory for Pecan Prince in Houston Heights, a growing industrial neighborhood where they could step up production of their increasingly popular brands. This is a very nice, like, entrepreneurial story. They buy a recipe for, like, praline. <laughs> it's like, nowadays, you'd just be like, yeah, just go on Google and find a really popular one. And now they're like, they're scaling this business. I like this. Meanwhile, Mary's father died, and she sent 19-year-old Dean to Indiana to live on the farm with his grandmother. Mary thought it would be good for her mother to have a man floating about the place, and she thought it would be good for Dean to get out in the world and away from Jake. Up in Indiana, Dean got a job working at a coil factory. He purchased a telescope and briefly took up amateur astronomy before getting bored and giving up. He also bought himself a camera and took up photography, which he stuck to, and later a movie camera, which he used to film the kids on neighboring farms. <laughs> <laughs> like a weirdo. Arguably a red flag given his later history. Oh, yes. <laughs> He's like, come over here, child. <laughs> Let me film you. <laughs> oh, Dean, you weirdo. It reminds me of that. I was trying to do the voice, the, 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 the P word, or like allegedly from Family Guy, who's always like, is he into Chris? <laughs> Some dark shit. Dean didn't get along very well with his grandmother, who said he would constantly be slacking off and wouldn't help her out with many chores. While Dean was up in Indiana, he met a girl named Wanda, who grew infatuated with him. Mary asked Dean to return to Houston in 1962 to help out with the flourishing candy business, this time offering to pay him a salary. He maintained a correspondence with Wanda, sending her candy with his letters. Then Wanda phoned Dean at the Pecan Prince factory and said, Dean, are you sitting down? Dean replies that he wasn't. Okay, well, go ahead and sit down. <laughs> it's like, it, when do you say, are you sitting down? It's not a real, it's, it's, it's how you say, instead of saying, like, I've got some news. It's not good news. It's basically the same thing. It doesn't actually mean you need to sit down. Unless, I mean, he's got a heart condition, doesn't he? So maybe he does need to sit down. Dean, I'm getting married, Wanda said. Who to? Dean asked. To you. Wanda giggled, which is probably the cutest marriage proposal from a woman that I've ever heard. But Dean didn't see it that way. No, Dean lives somewhere else. Dean is gay. He hung up, never called Wanda again, and stopped sending her letters. And fair enough, Dean was gay, and Wanda didn't know. But this was a particularly brutal way of dealing with things. Yeah, that's 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 mean. But also, Wanda's definitely got the wrong end of the stick, because I don't think there doesn't seem to be any evidence that Dean was leading her on. He's just sending her letters and defending Dean. <laughs> who buries children in his storage locker. What the f***? While living in Houston Heights, Dean Coral quickly gains the nickname The Candyman because of his reputation for giving out free candy to the local children, particularly when Dean passed by the local schools. And I'm sure very loud alarm bells started ringing in your heads. Yeah, but also no, because he's like, he's literally, that's his job. His family own like a chocolate business. It would kind of be weird if they didn't give out free chocolate to the local schools. It's just like a good like social... What do they call it? Like corporate social responsibility? That kind of sh like when companies do stuff for free so people like them. 
But such was not the case in 1962, Houston, Texas, which was still a couple of decades away from the era of stranger danger. Yeah, I mean, and it's also like, it'd be way more suspect if Dean was going to the store and buying chocolate and then taking it to children at school. But if he's literally known as the chocolate maker, I don't think it's that suspicious. Instead, Dean was simply viewed as a nice, quiet man who liked kids and worked at a candy factory. A Willy Wonka figure, if you will. I was going to say, it's a bit like Willy Wonka. Like, no one thinks Willy Wonka's weird if he just came up. I mean, he's a fictional character and everyone thinks Willy Wonka's weird, so I don't know what my argument here. But no one thinks Willy Wonka's a P-word. It'd be a really different movie. Yes, the danger must be growing for the rowers keep on rowing and they're certainly not showing any signs that they are slowing. The only person who became suspicious of Dean Coral's behavior was his stepfather, Jake West. He observed how Dean behaved around children and teenage boys and told Mary that he thought Dean might be gay. Mary, with the characteristic homophobia of the time, rejected the suggestion, insisting that he was, quote, a loyal, obedient, loving, and good normal boy. <laughs> That doesn't sound forced at all. How is he? He's loyal, obedient. He's good. He's definitely not gay. Mary also said that the reason why her 22-year-old son was never seen flirting or dating women was because, quote, he'd already seen so many broken marriages. Meanwhile, Mary's own marriage to Jake West was going down the toilet. In 1962, Jake announced he would be taking over the business and would run Pecan Prince on his own, allowing Mary to return to her role as a housewife. Mary obeyed and ceded the business to Jake. But obviously, she resented this. To quote, he thought the Pecan Prince was already on its feet, so he could get all the credit. Mary started a second candy company from scratch, the Coral Candy Company, and worked 12-hour days in the garage behind the family home, developing new recipes and streamlining manufacturing and distribution. Holy sh**, Mary. That's savage. <laughs> it's like, yeah, 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 you want to kick me out of my business? I'm going to start my own business and compete with you. And it's like, you know we're financially very entangled together as husband and wife, and she's like, I will crush you. I must break you. She appointed Dean as vice president and Stanley as secretary treasurer in absentia, since the latter, now 20 years old, didn't want to work at the company full time. I feel like he's like in absentia. It's like, so do you have a treasurer? It's like, no. Wait, what is it? Why is a treasurer? Do you have treasurers at companies? Don't you have like CFOs or whatever? Or like bookkeepers, accountants, that kind of stuff? Mary had a talent for this kind of work, and it wasn't long before the Coral Candy Company started to make money. As strange as it may seem, there were now two competing candy companies operating under the same roof. Jake's reaction was to write letters to retailers across the American South, warning them that, quote, unquote, someone was stealing his recipes and packaging candy just like Pecan Prince's for sale. When Mary found out that Jake was doing this, it pretty much torpedoed the marriage. They got divorced in 1963. Yo, Mary, when you start competing in the same business as your husband without agreement on it, I don't want to say his blessing, she doesn't need to get his blessing, but it's the, it would be a bit weird wouldn't it? That would be a bit weird. It'd be like if my wife started making educational videos just like mine and started taking my topics. I'd be like, what's going on? <laughs> Why are you doing this? <laughs> that year, the Coral Company hired additional staff, purchased a warehouse, and converted it into a factory with a small candy shop out front. Dean moved into a makeshift apartment on the second floor. He also purchased a small Honda motorcycle on which he used to take the local kids on little joy rides. Ding, 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 those are love bells. <laughs> That's got nothing to do with candy. He's like, hold on tight, children. Oh! And he soon bought a white Dodge delivery van with furniture and a portable television in the windowless back section of the vehicle. Bro, you just bought you just bought a P-word van, didn't you? The file letter B cliches continue to roll in thick and fast. But of course, they weren't yet cliches back then. While we have very limited information on this period, it is highly likely that the 23-year-old Dean Coral had already begun his career as a predator. 
Before 1963 was out, a teenage male employee at the candy factory complained to his peers that Dean Corll had offered him money in exchange for sexual favors. Mary noted that Dean had started avoiding the youth, and once she found out the reason, she accused the teenager of propositioning Dean, not the other way around. It doesn't matter, Mary. Use your big brain. He's a 23-year-old, and the other one's a teenager. It doesn't matter if the teenager wants it. Dean can't... You can't... No. No, 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 no. Mary promptly fired the teenage worker. Oh, Mary. Toby in HR is going to be really upset about that. The extent of Dean's predations on children and teenagers at the time is not known, nor is it clear whether it already started torturing and killing. The latter is unlikely, but not impossible. Nor is it far behind. Like his father before him, the United States draft caught up with Dean Coral in 1964. Was this? I had no idea that the draft was such a big thing. Huh. I mean, like, I'm not against like national service or like it's not conscription. What's it called? You know, when you go into the military, you have to go to the military for a couple of years. I kind of think in some ways that's good for a country and good for a uh, good for people. But I wouldn't want to be drafted and actually have to go and find, you know, an actual war. Same answer. Because it's like I'd like the discipline and to learn things about the military. But I don't want to go and get shot in like a trench or in Vietnam. That just sounds horrible. On August the 10th, Cora reported to Fort Polk in Louisiana for basic training. Thereupon, he was transferred to Fort Benning in Georgia for specialized training in field radio repair. He was then posted to Fort Hood in Texas. Several years later, Coral himself claimed to acquaintances that he had his first sexual experiences with men while in the army, although he never went into detail. According to some accounts, Coral also claimed that he first realized he was gay in the army at the relatively advanced age of 24 or 25, but the veracity of this latter claim seems doubtful. Meanwhile, Dean's family had never been big fans of conscription or fighting in the armed forces, and so Mary approached the Red Cross and the Texas governor to secure a hardship discharge for him, claiming that Dean was needed at the candy company. Doesn't Dean have a super weak heart where he can't even do physical exercise? Surely that's something that gets you out of the draft. Mary was successful, and Dean was honorably discharged on June the 11th, 1965, with a clean record. Mary probably spared her son a trip to Vietnam. Uh, which is unfortunate, because we know how this story goes. <laughs> we know where it's going. It would have been better if Dean Coral had been like killed in Vietnam. Dean Coral returned to Houston and moved into a small motorhome that was next to the new Coral Candy Company factory on 22nd Street and across the road from Helms Elementary School. Oh no. Oh no. He's living a... No. Again, you might be hearing alarm bells. Oh, David, I absolutely am. It was not far from Jake West's factory. Two or three times a day, Coral would drive over to the Prince factory and spy on comings and goings there. Both brands were popular, and things had gotten a little cutthroat between the two former spouses. To quote one Coral Candy employee, Mary hated Jake West and was deliberately trying to put him out of business. And so was Dean. Mary was always telling Dean how much she hated West and all this stuff. The atmosphere was very intense. <laughs> Compared to what we know is coming, this sounds kind of like, I like these kind of business stories. It's, this is like a good business story, and it's going to turn into a terrible murder story. It wasn't long before Jake West put a new slogan on boxes of pecan prints to quote, the original Texas pecan chewy, with obvious subtext. In retaliation, Mary inscribed on her boxes, Coral Candy, new, improved, but with a woman's touch. Meanwhile, Dean took over the majority of day-to-day -day operations at the company, while Mary spent more of her free time shopping, going to beauty salons, visiting psychics and palm readers, okie-dokie, and above all, going on copious numbers of dates. Mary was 49 years old in 1965, and by all accounts was still a handsome woman. She had a lot of fun with local bachelors in Houston, but being conscious of Jake West's own amorous conquests, she was determined to get remarried. Dean would get frustrated and disgusted when she tried to tell him about her dates. <laughs> Mary, don't be telling your son. It's like, oh, I had a great date last night. It's like, mum, don't want to know. <laughs> Do not want to know, thank you. 
T. Coral began to experiment with confectionery recipes and, like Willy Wonka, kept the precise ingredients and preparation methods a secret and individual workers in separate parts of the production process. According to one employee, this resulted in the quality of the coral candies being far superior to pecan prints. In fact, coral candy nearly put pecan prints out of business. Coral also installed microphones in the factory and tapped the phone lines, allegedly in order to prevent industrial sabotage. Indeed, he once caught two employees on tape conspiring to steal some candy and sell it on the side, though he never rumbled any plot led by Jake West. Meanwhile, the coral production line expanded to include candy apples, chocolate-covered fruits, and various assorted sweets. Dean also dived into factory work, getting into shape, and becoming quite lean and muscular at 5'11 and 185 pounds. Siri, what's 185 pounds in kilograms? 83 kilos, big boy. Coral worked tirelessly, without much of a social life, but he became extremely outgoing with employees on the factory floor and with clients, distributors, and business partners. This is, this is that uh, psycho vibe, right? Because he doesn't really have any friends, but he's also very charming and can turn it on when he wants to. He became known for his sense of humor and fondness for pranks. He also threw blowout Christmas parties where they'd munch on chocolate-covered cherries and grapes injected to the point of bursting with brandy and vodka. That does sound kind of awesome. I had my daughter's... Oh, God, I don't like it. It's like I've got this story I want to bring up about my daughter's birthday party from a couple of months ago. But it's also like, we're in a story about murder, but I'll tell it anyway for some levity. We did it at a chocolate factory. There's this awesome place. If you are in Prague, and you, especially if you've got kids, even if you haven't, it's worth going. There's a chocolate factory called Chocotopia, and they have like a chocolate plantation out in like South America somewhere. And it's got all of the stories about these guys going out there and setting it up and about how they source all of the chocolate and all of this stuff. And then this giant building makes this chocolate and they have so much of it. And you can go there and you can make these different chocolate like shapes and stuff, which is what my daughter's birthday party was about. And then they had this like place where you, we had like it all set up for a party. And there was so much chocolate that everyone was just ridiculously full of chocolate. And we barely even scratched. It was like, it was, if I was a kid, it would, this would have been my fantasy. Now as a 36 year old man, I'm like, oh, I better not eat more chocolate or I'm going to regret this. <laughs> and I just, I did regret it, but it was so good. Chocotopia, everybody. Check it out if you're in Prague. <laughs> it's not sponsored. It's just amazing. It was quite a change from the days when Dee Coral was a quiet young man who kept no friends. However, if Coral was a psychopath, it's hardly surprising that in adulthood he'd learned to ape acceptable behaviors and mimic personality traits that he observed would win people over and generally transform himself into a charismatic figure. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. As a kid, you don't have to do that. But then as you get older, these people learn and they're like, oh yeah. You put on this mask, you put on that mask, easy. Ted Bundy did much the same thing. And indeed, the confident facade worked. Coral, who continued to suppress his secret homosexuality, became intensely desired by many of his female employees. He'd tease them and keep them at arm's length. But one girl managed to finagle a trip to the beach with him, to her boundless excitement, but was confused and disappointed when Coral pulled up to her house with a van full of kids that he wanted to take with them. <laughs> Bruh. <laughs> Weird. Red fucking alert. The girl was furious and vowed to never go on a date with him again. I mean, really? I mean, if you were like, oh yeah, he's taking all the kids to the beach and he's a P-word, you'd be like, bro, what the hell? But if he just turns up, he's like, no, 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 I just love supporting the local community. And this is the past. You'd just be like, oh, you're such a good guy. 
Dean's mother Mary, who was utterly in denial about her son and had a major blind spot as far as his homosexuality and uh, p-word inclinations were concerned, later explained to the media, quote, he didn't want to show much affection toward women because he wasn't ready to hurt their feelings or take up with them. So he kept kids between them. Mm, he's so hardcore in denial, Mary. <laughs> I mean, this really couldn't get more obvious. But I guess the 1960s were a simpler, more naive time. When his mother tried to line up dates with quote-unquote nice girls, he would get frustrated and tell her to mind her own business. But Coral briefly got a proverbial beard, dating a single mother for a few months named Betty Hawkins. Oh, beard, it means like... I remember learning this. Where does this word come from? Like, a woman who's dating a man so the man can deny he's gay, right? He was really good with her kids and got them to call him daddy. Meanwhile, there was Helms Elementary School across the street. Every day, like clockwork, there would be a line of cherubic little school kids outside the factory asking for free samples. Without fail, Dean would go out and give candy to them. When their parents complained, Coral ignored them and continued to dispense the candy anyway. He gained a second nickname, the Pied Piper. As Ruby Jenkins, one of Coral's business associates, said, quote, Dean loved kids. I never saw a man who loved kids like Dean. Uh, they were always around him, hugging him, and he just loved it. <laughs> it's like that could go two ways, can't it? Because like, oh, he's like this nice guy who gives out the chocolate to kids. Or it could be like, he's this guy who gives out chocolate to kids. It's like, yeah, Dave writes, I'll bet he did. I bet he did. Oh, grim. Coral also set up a pool table in the back of the factory, which attracted a large number of teenage boys who'd come to hang out with Dean after school. See, now that is just a bit... Like, before handing out the chocolate and stuff, it's like, I understand, like, in a simpler time and stuff, that this could be seen as okay, but he's like, no, he's just set up, like, a pool table so teenage boys come and hang out with him. Even if he's not sexually a weirdo, that's still weird. Like, get some friends your own age. He bought a stereo and set it up in his trailer next to the factory, where teenage boys would regularly be seen relaxing and listening to music. He was also constantly taking boys for rides in his windowless white van with a couch inside it, usually on trips to go surfing at the beach. Some of Coral's employees increasingly began to suspect that he was attracted to teenage boys, given how flirtatiously he acted around them. And while allegations from the mid-1960s are pretty thin on the ground, this is quite an obvious pattern of grooming. Coral's criminal activities were already in full swing. The prevailing mystery is how many molestations there were at the time, and exactly when Coral started to torture and murder his victims. We shall never know for certain. One thing we do know is that one of Coral's employees, a teenager only known as Jimmy, refused to be left alone with Coral. When asked why, he would merely hang his head and he wouldn't answer. Another thing that we do know is that Coral spent a lot of time digging behind the candy factory and through the floor of his back office, claiming that he was burying defective candy in order to avoid attracting insects. Bro, that's what bins are for. This is not what he was doing. So we're, we're sure, right? No one listening to this is like, oh, yeah, he's really burying candy. No, he's burying bodies. So we know this is when it began. Like 90% certainty, right? The burials happened entirely at night. Coral would wrap the quote-unquote defective candy in plastic sheeting and would pour concrete on top of it once the internment was done. It's not candy. When Coral ran out of room in the floor of his office and behind the factory, he started burying the quote-unquote candy near White Oak Bayou in an area which was later converted into a parking lot. To this day, neither site has been excavated by forensic investigators. It's pretty clear that Coral started killing in the mid-1960s, which likely makes his total kill counts much higher than the one officially ascribed to him. Why haven't they investigated this? Just, it's a parking lot. It's not like you're digging up a skyscraper. Just go, just go demolish the parking lot and plaster over it when you're done. 
Go find that. What the hell? The Twist. In 1966, Mary, now aged 50, got hitched for a fourth time. The man's name has been thoroughly suppressed in most sources for legal reasons because, as you will see, he did not come off particularly well. As such, we'll simply refer to him by the pseudonym Turd Ferguson. <laughs> if you'll forgive the Norm Macdonald reference. I don't know the Norm Macdonald reference, but the, 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 the Turd as a name is quite funny. Turd was a merchant seaman who met Mary via a matchmaking service. The nuptials were extremely rushed thereafter. They honeymooned in Mexico City, where Mary was alarmed by Turd being unnecessarily violent with a cab driver. Turd had frequent fits of rage and talked about how he was constantly in conflict with other men. Yeah, what's that saying? It's like you can judge people by how they treat staff. Like, if you're at a restaurant and, like, someone's rude to the waiter, it's like you can, I feel like, Unless you're having a terrible experience in the restaurants, then it's like that's a that's a warning sign. According to Mary, he even bragged about how sometimes crewmen would walk off his ships when they found out Turd Ferguson would be serving aboard. Additionally, Turd's first wife had hanged herself in the garage. But the fact that Turd himself had taken the rope off his wife's neck and laid her out on the ground before calling the police made Mary suspicious. Mary, 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 I, I, you're married to this dude. What the f*** are you doing? She actually went downtown to look at the coroner's report for signs of foul play, but to no avail. While on a road trip through Indiana to visit Mary's family, Turd Ferguson had a fit of rage while in the car, and Mary dumped his ass in a field and drove away. They annulled the marriage shortly thereafter. Good move, Mary. I get the feeling you'd have ended up murdered if you'd have stayed with old Turdy here. However, Turd Ferguson was evidently also something of a sweet talker because only a few weeks later they remarried and moved in together. Unfortunately, things did not get better. Shocking. It's really shocking. Turd didn't turn himself around, did he? Turd proved himself to be extremely jealous. Once, while offshore in Boston, Turd Ferguson phoned Mary, but she didn't pick up, so he immediately flew to Houston to see if she'd shacked up with another man. Another time, when Turd was supposedly away on a boat, he rented a car and staked out Mary's house for two nights. Yet another time, he misdialed their home number and a man answered, so Turd flew into a rage, went home, burst into the room where Mary was sewing, and scared the living daylights out of her. It is possible that it wasn't just paranoid jealousy and Mary was actually cheating on Turd at the time, and there are circumstantial reasons to suspect Mary's track record in her previous marriages, but there obviously isn't anything on the planet that could explain such blatantly toxic and coercive behavior. Turd was a shit. It is notable, however, that he showed some good judgment of character by taking a thorough dislike to Dean, who, like Jake West before him, Turd thought was a creep and paid far too much attention to children. Yes, Turd is Turd might be a turd, but he's right on this. He's not as much of a turd as Dean. The friction between Turd and Dean grew to the point that Dean refused to visit the newly reweds for Christmas and for Dean's birthday on Christmas Eve. This broke Mary's heart. But there is really very little information to redeem Ted Ferguson in this narrative. The unstable nature of their relationship constantly had Mary leaving the house and moving back in once Turd managed to beg her to return. In one instance, Turd sent Mary eight bunches of flowers and told her he'd throw the most beautiful funeral for her if she ever died. <laughs> oh my god, how romantic. For instance, if she failed to return home and he killed her for it. Oh sh**. <laughs> That took a turn. By all accounts, Turd Ferguson was a major headache and an abusive arsehole. And in an act of utter hypocrisy, despite all the violent, jealous behavior, Turd would also openly cheat on Mary when they were on the outs. As the marriage continued, it would only get worse. Meanwhile, in 1967, Dean Coral was still in full flush of his popularity, handing out candy to the kids across the street at Helms Elementary School. One of the students that caught his eye was David Brooks, a 12-year-old sixth grader. 
Brooks took an immediate liking to Coral because he was the first adult who didn't comment on Brooks's thick-rimmed glasses when Coral met him, which was otherwise something about which Brooks was teased relentlessly by his fellow students and other adults. What adults are teasing a 12-year-old because of his glasses? You need to get your sh** together if you're that adult. Like the other boys, Coral took Brooks for rides on his motorcycle and for trips down to the beach and got him to hang out in the back of the factory playing pool. While Coral and Brooks' relationship did not yet turn out to outright pedestry, it was quite clear that Coral was grooming Brooks. It was becoming clear that Coral Candy Company's finances were on a sharp downturn and that they had severely overestimated the market demand for their candy and overextended themselves. Coral laid off the majority of their staff and did some of the factory work himself, whipping up five or six batches at night for what few orders the company had. During the day, Coral took a job as a trainee at the Houston Lighting and Power Company, testing relay systems in order to make ends meet. Oh no! I mean, <laughs> oh no, Coral's lost his money. But it's like, I like the story of this up and coming business and how they made it successful and they competed. And now it's like, yeah, there's just a downstern sometimes, doesn't it? It's like, it's not always a, just a constant march uphill. Meanwhile, the greatest marriage story in human history continued to span the spectrum from sh to really sh. Mary and Turd began threatening to have each other committed to an insane asylum. Mary actually went ahead and did it, and Turd was kept for 24 hours observation before being released. He then went on to threaten to have Mary committed to a private clinic where he could pay to have her there indefinitely and subjected to shock therapy. Mary was horrified and slept in the office at the candy factory for six weeks. She got a restraining order on Turd for good measure. Not to be dissuaded, Turd refused to get a divorce and began lurking around the candy factory, leaving threatening messages on the company answering machine and occasionally trying to break into the place. One night at 2am, Turd Ferguson showed up at the factory and began pounding on the door, yelling that he was going to beat the shit out of Mary and calling Dean a derogatory slur for homosexual. At this point, Mary declared that she was going to shoot Turd, but Dean told her not to and threatened to take away Mary's 22 caliber pistol if she couldn't control herself. Mary then started encouraging Dean to go out and murder him instead. <laughs> go on, son. Go out there and finish him off. <laughs> As a happy compromise, Dean gave Mary some bricks to throw at Turd Ferguson from the second floor window. Illustrative of Mary's own state of dial about her son, years later she said to quote, How could people say now that Dean is a murderer? Why, if Dean was ever going to be a problem to anybody, it would have been to Turd Ferguson. Um, Mary, you are so blind to what is going on, it's not even funny. In June 1968, Mary finally managed to get divorced from Turd on the grounds of both abuse and adultery. A few days later, on advice Mary got from a psychic, she took her now 13-year-old daughter Joyce from a marriage to Jake West and moved to Colorado. This was to avoid further threats from Turd Ferguson, who seemed a pretty likely candidate for someone who'd be violent or even homicidal towards an ex-wife. Dean Coral, meanwhile, remained in Houston, shut down Coral Candy Company for good, and began working full-time at Houston Lighting and Power. He'd never see his mother in person again. Now, despite no longer being the candy man, Dean Coral continued to pal around with underage boys. He moved into a prefabricated shed across the street from Cooley Elementary School. He installed a blacklight, television, and stereo system, so it would seem like a cool place for teenagers to hang out. Dude, you're just getting older, and they're staying the same age, and you're a f***ing weirdo, dude. Now that Coral's mother was out of town, he began to be a little more open about his same-sex attraction with a small number of older acquaintances, men in their early 20s, but for the most part he still kept it a secret. Coral also regularly caught up on a monthly basis with his old girlfriend Betty Hawkins. But mostly, Coral's choice of companions was decidedly younger. One of them was David Brooks, and from that point forward they were seen constantly in each other's company, 
1969, when Brooks was 14, their relationship turned sexual, with Coral paying Brooks $5 or $10, 35 to $70 in modern money, or bribing him with gifts to allow Coral to perform oral sex on him. Brooks once specified, It was always Dean doing something to me. It was never me doing something to Dean. As 1970 dawned, many of Coral's adult acquaintances noticed a sharp change in his demeanor. He became more isolationist again like he was in the old days, and he was no longer the charismatic dynamo everyone knew and loved when he managed the factory. The most likely explanation is that he didn't need to wear that mask anymore. Coral was also quick to anger and often threatened people with violence. Furthermore, as Coral turned 30, he became increasingly sensitive about his age and didn't seem to want older companions around anymore. He also started moving constantly to new apartments and houses around Houston. Shortly after he arrived, Neighbors would take note of wild parties with loud music attended by young men, and when Coral moved out, a few of his former landlords took notice of bullet holes in the walls. One landlord noticed a steel hook that was typically used to hold a chain or a rope had been affixed to a wall inside the bedroom. Coral moved about five or six times a year. He explained to his mother that part of the reason was that he wanted to avoid some young men with whom he didn't want to be friends anymore. But what this behavior suggests is that Coral kept on the move to avoid allegations of sexual abuse from mounting up in any particular neighborhood. Yeah, that's bang on, David. That's exactly what's going on. And it's the past, so I guess people weren't brilliant at tying together. I feel like on Facebook, <laughs> there'd be like the Coral's a Predator group, and people would be like, I've seen him here, he's moved here. Find him, get away, make him move. Meanwhile, David Brooks's parents got a divorce. His father stayed living in Houston, and his mother moved to the nearby town of Bowman's. The now 15-year-old Brooks dropped out of high school and went to Bowman to live with his mother. But he frequently came back to Houston to visit his father. And quite often, instead of staying with his dad, Brooks stayed wherever Dean Coral was living at the time. He described living with Dean Coral as a second home. In addition to payment for sexual services, Coral was also quick to give Brooks money whenever the teenager asked for it. Then one night, in September 1970, we don't have an exact date, David Brooks paid an unannounced visit to where Coral was staying at the Harold Turboff Apartments, not far from the county orphanage. The door was unlocked. Brooks walked into the living room and saw Dean Coral completely naked, forcibly sodomizing two teenage boys who were manacled to a plywood torture board the Coral had suspended from the ceiling. As David Brooks later attested, quote, They was all three of them naked. Dean jumped up and said, I'm just having some fun and he promised me a car if I kept quiet. Please, I know this isn't where it ends, but this is really where he should go to prison forever. Like, David Brooks should be like, yeah, 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 you need to go and arrest that guy, and I'll tell you, and we'll get those witnesses, and that'll be that. But that's not what happens, is it? David Brooks left. Not long afterward, he met up with Coral again, who admitted to the younger man that he had tortured and murdered the two teenagers. But Coral went further. He proposed a deal with Brooks. For every teenage boy... That David Brooks could lure to his apartment, Coral would pay Brooks $200, or roughly $1,500 in modern money. Confronted with this horrifying revelation and Coral's equally grotesque proposal, quite surprisingly, David Brooks actually accepted. And yes, that's insane, but also we've got to remember that David Brooks has been fairly heavily groomed for a very long time. Not that that's really much of an excuse, but Jesus. Also, where's he getting so much money from? He just works in an electric company. The Accomplice On Friday, September the 15th, 1970, around the same time that Dean Coral made his ghoulish offer to David Brooks, 18-year-old Jeffrey Conan, a student at the University of Texas in the city of Austin, was hitchhiking back to Houston to visit his parents for the weekend. Conan's college roommate, Juan Lopez, was also heading to Houston for the weekend. 
He accompanied Conan as they leapfrog from ride to ride, each provided by kindly strangers, on their 165-mile journey back home. The last ride they received was from a man named Legrand. Along the way, Legrand's car blew a tire, and so Lopez and Conan helped him change it. Afterward, Legrand drove them to a bar in Houston and bought them a drink to thank them. At 6.15 p.m., Legrand dropped off Conan at the corner of Westheimer and South Voss in a posh business and shopping district in Houston called Uptown. Lopez stayed in the car, and Legrand drove him home. This is the last time Conan was seen alive. Oh, Legrand is, is coral, isn't he? Jeffrey Conan was approximately 130 pounds or 59 kilograms with blonde hair and blue eyes. He wore a blue t-shirt, brown jeans, and a yellow raincoat. He was carrying a red plaid bowling bag in his pockets and had a scholarship check for $250 or just shy of $2,000 in modern money. Conan was short and looked decidedly young for his age, which explains why Coral targeted him. Conan did not live in Uptown, and his roommate Lopez had no idea what he intended to do there, later stating that he knew Conan had definitely intended to make his way home. The most likely scenario is that Conan bought something in Uptown and then hitched another ride taking the rest of the way home. Unfortunately, the vehicle he entered was likely driven by Dean Coral. When Conan did not arrive home, his parents reported him missing, only to be told by police that he was likely a runaway that possibly run off to California like so many youth were doing at the time and would quote-unquote probably turn up. <laughs> Brilliant police work there. Well done. Fearing a robbery gone wrong, Conan's parents shared bank records to see if anyone had cashed their son's scholarship check but to no avail. Conan's body was found three days later, buried at High Island Beach. The body had been wrapped in plastic sheeting covered with a layer of lime, and a large boulder had been pushed on top of the shallow grave, further concealing it and preventing wildlife from digging it up. Conan's hands and feet had been bound with a nylon cord, and a gag had been stuffed in his mouth. He had been forcibly sodomized, tortured, and killed by strangulation. David Brooks knew where he was buried. And although the Candyman had been likely operating for years at this point, Jeffrey Conan is the earliest known victim of Dean Coral. Well, go dig up that f***ing parking lot, then, if you really want to know. On September the 17th, 1970, Dean Coral rented a boat shed from Mamie Mayner, proprietor, oh, the, the woman from the beginning, the boat shed, the, 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 the storage room with the car, of Southwest Boat Storage on the outskirts of Houston for $20 a month. On December the 13th, 1970, two 14-year-olds from the Spring Branch District in Houston named James Glass and Danny Yates were at a religious rally at the Evangelistic Temple at Church in Houston Heights. James Glass's father also attended the rally, along with James's brother, Willie. Sometime during the rally, David Brooks turned up. Brooks and Glass knew each other, and previously, Brooks had convinced Glass to attend a party at Dean Coral's apartment. Brooks managed to lure James Glass and Danny Yates away from the rally without informing anyone where they were going or with whom. The last time Willie Glass saw his brother and Yates, they were walking up the aisle of the church, as if they were headed to the restroom. And then, as Willie later said, they just vanished into thin air. David Brooks had successfully lured the two 14-year-olds into the hands of Dean Coral, who at that point had moved into an apartment in Yorktown. Coral began plying the two boys with drugs and alcohol. His usual modus operandi was, if he could convince his victims to drink and do drugs, to get them highly intoxicated or passed out so that he could easily restrain them. If he couldn't tempt the boys, Coral would trick the victims into putting on handcuffs by offering to show them an escape artist trick, in a tactic later copied by John Wayne Gacy. If that failed, Coral would use outright physical coercion, in this case, Booze was enough, though. Brooks was paid $400, or roughly $3,000 in today's money, and he left before any of the torture and violence began. Dean Coral manacled the two teenagers to a torture board suspended from the ceiling, gagged them, and once the boys regained consciousness, he forcibly sodomized them. Danny Yates was also tortured for an unknown duration with electricity from jumper cables hooked up to a generator. Then both boys were strangled to death with a nylon ligature. 
Dean Coral wrapped them in plastic sheeting, placed them in the trunk of his car, drove them to the outskirts of Houston, and buried them in the back of his boat shed. David Brooks assisted with the burial. David Brooks is in this crazy journey. <laughs> when the Glass and Yates families reported their sons missing, the police told them that without any evidence of foul play, no search would be conducted. Glass and Yates's cases were handed over to the missing persons department, where two different officers were assigned to each boy. The cases were then lost in a morass of bureaucracy, and the disappearances of the two boys were treated separately rather than as connected occurrences. Glass was classified as a runaway almost immediately because it once stormed out of the house after an argument with his father over the length of his hair. Glass had stayed the night with friends before returning home. Police thought that this was sufficient grounds to assume that he had run away again. Yates was classified as a runaway a few days later when police learned that he used to hang out at a house that was notorious for being frequented by runaway boys. Apparently, this was also sufficient to slap the runaway label on him and do nothing further. Yes, yes. I mean, I know the police are busy and stuff, but missing kids, come on, guys. The Glass and Yates families were on their own. They papered the town with missing persons flyers. Willie Glass ran an appeal directly to his brother in the newspaper. Even he assumed James was a runaway and begged him to return home, even offering to buy James a motorcycle if he did so. Danny Yates' father, meanwhile, drove down all the way to Monterey in Mexico, about 500 miles away, due to a dubious tip that Danny Yates had been seen there. Meanwhile, James's mother, Ima Glass, became mentally ill from the anxiety and grief. She began hallucinating that she saw James by the side of the road whenever she was in the car. Things escalated that she obtained a gun, grabbed her daughter Pamela, and dragged her into her bedroom. When police arrived, she screamed at them that they weren't going to take her daughter like they'd taken her son. Ima was disarmed, without anyone being hurt, and she was sent to a psychiatric ward, where she remained institutionalized for several months. Yeah, I can see. It's like this sort of like can break people. <sighs> Shortly after the murders of James Glass and Danny Yates, Dean Coral moved again, this time from his Yorktown apartment to a flat in Mangham Road. Not far away from Coral's apartment was a bowling alley, the Delmar Lanes. On January the 30th, 1971, 15-year-old Donald Wildrup and his 13-year-old brother Jerry were walking to the Delmar Lanes discussing the prospect of starting a bowling league. They had been dropped off by their father at a friend's house nearby, but after discovering that their friend wasn't home, the brothers headed off on foot without him. Somewhere along the way, Donald and Jerry were approached by David Brooks, who asked the boys if they wanted to smoke some weed. Brooks led them to a white windowless van where Coral was waiting. After getting the Waldrop boys stoned, Coral enticed them back to his apartment with promise of a party and more illicit substances. Once there, Donald and Jerry were plied with alcohol. This time, David Brooks stayed to watch what was about to unfold. Coral manacled the brothers to his torture board and sexually assaulted them for the next several hours. During the ordeal, both boys were subjected to genital mutilation. Coral kept the victims shackled to the torture board while he and Brooks went to sleep. The next morning, Coral cuffed each brother by one hand and one leg to the torture board, leaving Donald and Jerry with one hand free. Coral then informed the boys that whichever Waldrop brother beat their sibling to death would be unchained and allowed to leave. For the next several hours, Coral and Brooks watched the boys struggle to kill each other with their fists while dangling from the torture board, several times beating each other into a state of unconsciousness. Then Coral sexually assaulted the victims again before strangling them both to death. Brooks helped Coral wrap the victims in plastic and bury them in a common grave in the back left-hand corner of the boat shed. Oh, this is intense. The boy's father, Everett Waldrop, reported both of them missing, only to be told by the police that they were probably runaways. F***ing hell. After so many kids going missing. So many, like, same demo. After attempting for eight months to convince the police to take the matter seriously, Everett Waldrop was told to stop wasting police time. He's... Jesus Christ, he's a father whose kid's gone missing. 
And the police are like, stop wasting our time. God, can you imagine? Can you fucking imagine? True to his word last September, in exchange for Brooks keeping quiet, Dean Coral bought the teenager a green 1969 Chevrolet Corvette. It was through driving this vehicle that Brooks became acquainted with a 15-year-old part-time gas station attendant named Randall Harvey. Brooks and Harvey later quarreled over stolen stereo equipment, and during the argument, Brooks threatened to kill him. It turns out that Brooks was serious. On March 9, 1971, Randall Harvey was riding home on his bike after finishing his shift at the gas station. Somewhere between the gas station and his home in the suburb of Oak Forest, Harvey was forced by Dean Coral and David Brooks into Coral's windowless white van. Harvey's bike was thrown into the van after him, and it was later discarded, never to be found. Randall Harvey's hands and feet were bound with nylon cord, and he was carried into Coral's apartment on Magnum Road. Once inside, Dean Coral sodomized, tortured, and murdered Randall Harvey with a single gunshot to the head. Brooks was satisfied that it settled the score with Harvey, which softened the blow that he wasn't paid his usual $200 fee. The victim was buried in the back of Coral's boat shed. Randall Harvey's mother reported him missing two days later. She mentioned to the police that Harvey had quarreled with a 16-year-old teenager named David Brooks over stolen stereo equipment. Police didn't look into the lead and insisted that Harvey was probably a f***ing runaway, perhaps to get away from Brooks. Brooks was not questioned, and no search for Randall Harvey was conducted at the time. When his body was unearthed in the boat shed in 1973, it was not identified because a house fire had destroyed all of Randall Harvey's pictures and the boy did not have dental records. By this point, Harvey's mother was reluctant to participate further in the investigation, saying that she knew her son was dead and didn't want to put herself through the trauma of the identification process, only to find out that it wasn't him. Then, in 2008, Randall Harvey's sisters submitted their DNA to be tested against locks of hair from one of the unidentified bodies in Coral's boat shed. It was a match. And so, 37 years after his death, Randall Harvey's body was released by Houston police to his family. His sisters had him cremated and his ashes scattered at the same lake where they had scattered their grieving mother after she had died in 1994. Randall's sister Lenore said, quote, He needs to be fishing with Mama. He's had a hard enough life. When discussing Coral's pattern of killing and the suffering of his victims, Brooks later said, quote, Every once in a while, he'd take a gib by force, and then he'd do oral sex and rectal sex and all kinds of other things, and then he'd wind up killing him. Once they went to the board, they were as good as dead. It was all over, except for the shouting and the crying. This is probably a cruel way to put it. It probably sounds terrible. But most of them weren't no great loss. Yeah, Brooks, it sounds f***ing terrible, you piece of sh**. It's like, why would you f***ing say that? It probably sounds terrible, so don't f***ing say it. A Parent's Worst Nightmare At 2pm, on May the 29th, 1971, 13-year-old David Hillegeist left home with his little brothers to go swimming in the community pool, which was about a mile away. However, shortly after leaving his house, Hillegeist decided he was too embarrassed to go to the pool with his little brothers. He swung by his neighbor's house to see if his friend, 16-year-old Gregory Winkle, would like to go with him instead. David Hillegeist was skinny and small for his age, being only 5'3 and not yet 100 pounds. Although three years older, Gregory Winkle was also slender and small for his age, standing at 5'7. Thus, both boys made ideal targets for Dean Coral. Winkle and Hillegeist didn't make it to the pool. They were last seen by witnesses climbing into a white windowless van. Of course, this van was driven by Coral. Winkle and Hillegeist required no coercion to get inside. Both of them knew Coral. Gregory Winkle had worked part-time at Coral Candy Company alongside his mother Selma. David Hillegeist had often hung out at the factory, being among the many teenagers invited to use the pool table at the back. Thus, Dean Coral, the candy man, 
had no trouble convincing the two boys to accompany him to his apartment, where he got them intoxicated, then shackled, tortured, and forcibly sodomized them. This assault lasted for several hours, during which sharp objects were shoved into their rectum and glass rods were inserted into their urethras before being smashed with blunt force. At 11.30pm, Coral forced Gregory Winkle to phone his mother, Selma, who'd just gotten home from work, to discover that her phone was ringing. Under duress, Gregory said, quote, Mama, I called because I know you'd be worried. Selma Winkle asked her son where he was. Gregory didn't immediately answer, but he could be heard whispering a question to someone on the other end of the line. She heard the other person answer, but couldn't make out what they'd said. Then Gregory put his mouth back to the receiver and replied, We're in Freeport, Mama. I called to let you know where I was at. Selma thought this was odd because Gregory had often traveled to Freeport, a small seaside town approximately 60 miles or 100 kilometers from downtown Houston. Gregory knew the place like the back of his hand. There was no reason he'd need to ask someone on the other end of the line where he was. Selma asked Gregory, who he was with, and he replied, I'm out with some kids. What kids? Selma asked. Oh, just some kids. With my friend Joe and some kids. Are there any girls? Selma asked with a note of disapproval in her voice. No, Mama, Gregory replied. There's just a bunch of boys and I'm going to swim out here. You know better than to be out this late, Selma said angrily and hung up the phone. Not long after, Dean Coral strangled Gregory Winkle and David Hillegeist to death. He then wrapped the boys in plastic sheeting, drove them out to the southwest boat storage, and buried them in the back right-hand corner of his shed alongside Randall Harvey. David was buried in the fetal position. Gregory was buried sitting up. It's just... How how have we not heard... Like, this guy is... He's, like, killing more people than Ted Bundy. In horrific ways. And it's in America. Have we never... How has this not come up? Have I not... How is this guy not as infamous... As Gacy. Earlier that day, at 3 p.m., David Hillegeist's mother had found out that her son was missing only an hour after he had left because one of David's little brothers had called, asking to be picked up from the pool. The little boys had walked there without David and had never shown up subsequently. A few anxious hours passed, then at 7 p.m., Dorothy and her husband Fred began sweeping the neighborhood, calling out David's name, banging on doors, neighbors, and when that failed, the doors of strangers. But they notably missed Selma Winkle because she had not come home from work yet. Dorothy and Fred continued to search the area until 3 a.m. when they began phoning hospitals in case David had met with some kind of accident. But none of the hospitals they called had any record of admitting a boy of his description. At 6 a.m., the Hillegeists called the police and reported David missing. They were told not to worry and that David had probably just spent the night at a friend's house. When the officer was assured that David was not at any of his friend's houses and that he wasn't the sort of boy to do that sort of thing, the cop speculated that David had probably run away. Oh, what a surprise that a cop would speculate that rather than doing any work. The officer then informed the Hillegeist that unless there was evidence of foul play, a search would not be conducted. At that point, David was already dead. Dorothy and Fred spent May 30th searching across Houston. In the late afternoon, they learned that David had swung by Gregory Winkle's place an hour alarmed Selma told the Hillegeist that David and Gregory had headed off to the pool together and that at 11.30 that night, Gregory had phoned her saying that he was in Freeport. Selma also doubted that her son had simply run away. Gregory had left the house in swimming trunks with only 80 cents in his pocket. Selma was also widowed and depended on the 16-year-old Gregory to help her make ends meet. Gregory had always been very loving and attentive towards his mother and Selma thought it doubtful that he would just up and abandon her. Without delay, Fred and Dorothy Hillegeist headed to Freeport, a town of 12,000 people, and showed David's photo to anyone who would talk to them. Nobody had seen their son. Going four days without any sleep whatsoever, Fred and Dorothy chased up several rumors and investigated hundreds of miles of Texas coastline and the wider Houston area. 
On Wednesday, June the 2nd, they hired a private investigator who searched for three weeks, found nothing, and hit the Hillegeists with a bill for $1,100 or $8,700 in modern money, sending the family into debt. They didn't care. They just wanted their son back. Yeah, I mean, fair. Like, three weeks' work, $8,700. That's, it's not like he's trying to rip them off. He's just doing his job. And I'd do exactly the same thing. I'd be like, I'd hire all the people I could find. If the police aren't going to do it, I'll do it myself. Meanwhile, Fred and Dorothy Hillegeist and Selma Winkle had printed off 500 missing posters with pictures and descriptions of the two boys and the offer of a $1,000 reward. The anxious parents got the entire community to come out and distribute them across Houston. Among the volunteers was David Hillegeist's childhood friend, 15-year-old Elmer Wayne Henley. He reassured Dorothy, quote, Don't worry, Mrs. Hillegeist. David could be right under your nose, and you wouldn't even realize it. He then offered to take one of David's younger brothers fishing someday. Dorothy took note that at the time, Alma Wayne Henley seemed like he'd been drinking. Ooh, what's going on here? The search continued. David's sister Cynthia and her boyfriend spent countless nights driving all over Houston looking for him. The Hillegeists and Selma Winkle went further into debt in order to run ads in the local newspapers. Dorothy wrote the National Enquirer tabloid to bring attention to David's case. She also wrote the National Missing Youth Locator, a periodical devoted to information sharing on missing children in the days before the internet. Finally, out of desperation, Dorothy turned to the shameless lies of so-called clairvoyance. The first one said that David was dead in a South Texas town. The next said he was alive and well in Dallas. The next said that David was lying in hospital with amnesia and facing South. And the next said that he was enjoying jazz music on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. Fred Hillegeist actually traveled to both Dallas and New Orleans and predictably found nothing in clairvoyance. They're taking money that these people could be using on actual private investigators. Meanwhile, the Winkle and Hillegeist phone lines were clogged for weeks with crank calls and bogus tips. Also, f those people. Dorothy Hillegeist did, however, stumble upon a genuine lead. She learned that Gregory Winkle had an older friend in his late 20s or early 30s who owned a white van and also a Plymouth GTX. Nobody knew his name or could describe him. But a Plymouth GTX had been suspiciously prowling the neighborhood in the weeks following David and Gregory's disappearance. Concerned neighbors, already on high alert, had jotted down the license plate number. TMF 724. Dorothy passed the information onto the police who did absolutely nothing with it. Admittedly, the lead was quite tenuous, but if the police had looked into it just out of due diligence, they would have discovered that the vehicle belonged to Dean Coral, a man who was friendly with both David Hillegeist and Gregory Winkle. But there's never any chance of that happening. The police weren't investigating the disappearance of the two boys at all. Just before we continue with today's episode, let me give a shout out to today's fantastic sponsor, and that's Quinn. So you looking for that perfect gift for someone special? Because look, Valentine's Day, just around the corner. Thank you for the reminder, Quince. <laughs> Gotta get that sorted. Well, get it sorted with Quince. Easy. Whatever you're looking for this Valentine's Day, Quince has you covered with luxury essentials at affordable prices that you will love. Quince creates timeless essentials that never go out of style. You will have them in your closet forever. Quince have all the must-haves, like 100% Mongolian cashmere crew neck sweaters from $50. I don't even know how that happens. How do you make a cashmere sweater for $50? I've got one of these that they sent me, and it's super nice. I'm not exaggerating, I pretty much wear it every day. They've got 100% leather jackets and even fine jewelry. And the best part is that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the saving on to you. And Quince only works with factories that are safe, ethical, and responsible in their manufacturing practices and also use premium fabrics and finishes. Fantastic. I, like I said, I got that, that jumper. I've also got a long sleeve t-shirt from them. 
which is amazing. They have just, it's just super high quality stuff at prices that I don't believe how it's possible. The sort of, like, with that jumper, honestly expected it. You know, yeah, it's going to go through the wash and it's going to fall apart like after like 10 washes or whatever, or five washes. And it didn't. And I wear it every day. It's just, I can't believe how good it is for the price. I'm not, it sounds like this is on the ad copy. It's not. I'm blown away by this. So give yourself or others the gift of luxury this Valentine's Day with Quince. Go to quince.com casual for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot casual to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com casual. And now back to today's episode. The Twist Part 2 In July 1971, Dean Coral moved to a new apartment on San Felipe Street. As before, the neighbors noticed that loud music was constantly issuing from the place and that teenage boys were always coming and going in various stages of intoxication. Many of them had long hair and were shabbily dressed. And many of them behaved like total delinquents. Indeed, some of them did have juvenile criminal records and others were outright rent boys. Coral himself, however, made a better impression. He did not dress like a hippie or a party animal. He looked clean-cut and respectable. Coral was always polite to his neighbors and full of apologies about the noise. And he always seemed to be in the company of one young man David Brooks, who was a semi-permanent fixture at the place. On the afternoon of August the 17th, 1971, 17-year-old Reuben Watson Hanley asked his grandmother if he could go to the movies. She said yes and gave him $2.75. As an afterthought, Reuben's grandmother tossed in a couple of extra dimes in case he needed to call her via a payphone. Before leaving for the cinema, Reuben used the home phone to call his mother who was at work and told him he'd be back by the time she returned at 7.30. Reuben had a juvenile record, so his mother liked to keep close tabs on him. Reuben left to see Omega Man starring Charlton Heston. In the early evening, after the movie was finished, Reuben was walking home from the cinema when he encountered David Brooks. Reuben knew him from the days when they used to hang around the Coral Candy Company with a large number of other boys. Brooks wasted no time in inviting Reuben to a party at Dean Coral's new place. Coral was known to Reuben as the Candy Man, who used to give out free confectionery, take kids on motorbike rides, and take them surfing at the beach. As such, it didn't take much convincing for Reuben to head off with Brooks for a bit of a party. Yeah, like more innocent times, right? Nowadays, it's like, oh no, it's the nice old man who gives out candy. Be like, hello. <laughs> what? At 7.30pm, Reuben's mother arrived home to find that her son had not yet returned. Shortly thereafter, an audibly intoxicated Reuben phoned her to tell her that he'd be spending the night at quote-unquote David Brooks's place. Then Reuben abruptly hung up. Not long after, he was restrained, forcibly sodomized, and tortured. Brooks stayed around to watch the proceedings. Coral had stopped paying him his $200 fee, but Brooks didn't seem to care anymore. Brooks later claimed that Reuben Hanny was the first killing that he'd observed, but this was either a lie or a misremembering of the order of the murders, because David Brooks had at least observed the torture and murder of the Waldrop brothers back in January and likely observed the murder of Randall Harvey in March. At the very least, he participated in Harvey's abduction. Either way, this time, David Brooks watched Coral strangle Reuben Hanny and assisted the older man in burying the victim's body in the fetal position in the back of his boat shed. When Reuben's mother told the police that her son had claimed he was at David Brooks's place the night he disappeared, they didn't bother to question Brooks. Reuben was a runaway end of story. No! Police, what the f***? How many children have to disappear for you to f***ing do something? We have very little information about the next two murders, which occurred sometime in the autumn of 1971. No bodies were ever uncovered dating back to that time, and no names of the victims were ever identified. We're instead entirely dependent on the vague and chronologically jumbled testimony of David Brooks. 
We know that they happened after Dean Coral had moved to a new apartment on Columbia Street in September 1971. One of the two murders was of a boy whom Coral and Brooks picked up on the corner of 11th and Rutland Street. We do not know how old he was. Coral and Brooks tortured the victim for four days before they killed him. Brooks, as usual, assisted in his burial, but could not remember where it was. Brooks added, quote, It really upset Dean to have to kill this boy because he really liked him. The second murder from this period was of a boy whom Brooks mistook for James Glass, who had been killed several months earlier on January the 30th. Instead, the unidentified boy in the autumn of 1971 had attended a party at Coral's before Brooks had driven it home in his Corvette. However, when they arrived at the boy's house, he refused to get out and demanded to be taken back to the party. And so, to quote David Brooks directly, I took him back and Dean ended up killing him. Around November or December 1971, Brooks managed to lure Elmer Wayne Henley to Dean Coral's apartment. Henley was 15 years old and a childhood friend of David Hillegeist, having volunteered to put up missing flyers back in early June. Henley was a promising student, constantly getting A's and B's, and once testing with an IQ of 120. He was also extremely popular with girls, and was constantly entering into short-lived romances and early pubescent sexual encounters with them. But when Henley's mother Mary, who worked as a parking lot attendant, divorced Henley's alcoholic father in 1970, Boy was forced to take odd jobs to help his mother keep the household afloat and support his three other siblings. Thereafter, wait, what age do you have to be in school? Is this like one of those things where it's like people are going to be like, oh, Simon, you're so ignorant. <laughs> you don't know how the real world works. It's like, but it's a genuine question. When you're 15, don't you have to be in school? When do you have to be in school in America until like 16? I think that's what it is in the UK, or it was in the UK when I was younger. I think it might now be 18. But you can't just go and work an odd job at 15 and drop out of school, can you? You need like the basic education. Thereafter, Henley started drinking, and his grades plummeted to D's and F's. In the spring of 1971, Henley made the acquaintance of David Brooks, who was now 16 years old, and the two teenagers occasionally skipped school to go drinking together. Oh, okay, so he's working and school at the same time and also drinking. Uh-oh. That same year, Henley was charged in juvenile court for assault with a deadly weapon. In June 1971, Henley dropped out of school altogether. Henley was aware that David Brooks frequently hung out with an older man in his 30s, and he even met Coral in public once or twice, but kept his distance. Henley immediately suspected that Coral was gay. Henley believed at the time that David Brooks was straight, so he thought that Brooks was simply using Coral for his money, or as Henley put it, quote, hustling himself a queer. Then, in November or December of 1971, Wayne Henley was convinced by David Brooks to go to Coral's apartment and do some drinking. Dean Coral had intended to torture and murder him like the others, but as they relaxed and shouted, Coral took a shine to Henley. Coral claimed that he was a thief and asked Henley if he'd like to earn a couple of extra bucks. Over the next few weeks, Coral, Brooks, and Henley committed three house burglaries together. Henley handed over his share to his mother. During one of the robberies, Coral asked Henley if he'd be willing to kill if necessary, to which Henley replied in the affirmative. Oh no, Coral's building his little gang of psychos, isn't he? Not long afterward, Henley was drinking again at Coral's apartment when the older man claimed he worked for a child trafficking ring based in Dallas. Oh my god, he's really escalating, isn't it? I, I mean, it's like, it's like grooming for crime. It's like, yeah, 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 no, we'll just start with a little house robbery, it's fine. And then it's like, would you be okay to murder? And it's like, yeah, now we're doing child trafficking. It's like, what's next? Oh yeah, I've got a little genocide going on. Jesus. Coral told Henley that he would pay him $200 for every boy that Henry lured to Coral's apartments. Again, where is he getting this money from? Oh, I guess like the robberies and stuff, so it's a big circle of crime. Wayne Henley said he was inwardly disgusted at the idea, but didn't dare show it and politely declined Coral's proposal. He ignored Brooks and Coral's repetition of the offer for several months, but Henley did not stop hanging out with Brooks and Coral and gradually came to view the latter as an elder brother type figure. It's like, bro, I don't understand how that works. It's like, would you like to be involved in our child trafficking ring? 
And inside, you're like, bro, that's fucking sick. What the fuck? And then you're like, yeah, but we'll continue to be mates. I just don't want to be involved in your horrible crimes. <laughs> but we're still friends. Let's just not talk about business. I What? <laughs> you can't divorce those two things. If someone does a job that you don't like, fine. Like, I don't know, maybe someone's... Uh, a, a telemarketer who phones up people and sells them like double glazing or whatever and you're infuriated by these people you can still hang out with that person fine but when they say like oh yeah no what's what's your day job oh, i'm an, i'm i'm a child uh trafficker then it's like no don't no you can't divorce those two things from each other what's going on Meanwhile, by early 1972, the financial situation of the Henley household had become so precarious that Henley changed his mind and told Coral that he would do it he'd find some kids for him Dean Coral moved to 925 Shuler Street on February the 19th, 1972. Henley testified that sometime in late February or early March, he picked up an unidentified victim on the corner of 11th and Studerwood Street and lured him back to Coral's apartment to smoke some weed. On Coral's instruction, Henley offered to show the boy a magic trick. Henley cuffed his own hands behind his back, and using a key he had hidden in his back pocket, Henley miraculously freed himself. The boy's hands were cuffed in order to learn the trick, but Coral swiftly pushed the victim over and bound his feet with a nylon cord. Coral then gagged and blindfolded him. At that point, Henley exited the apartment, thinking he had delivered the unidentified victim to a sex trafficking ring. The next day, Coral paid Henley $200. Jesus. And this is also like, now, even if he wants to go to the police, he can't. Because he's, what, that's got to be like life in prison, right? That sort of thing. Even if he's like, oh no, it's just going to charge trafficking <laughs> that's life a month later on march the 24th 1972 18 year old frank aguirre was finishing up his shift at long john silver's restaurants on yale street he called the house of his girlfriend ronda williams and told her that he'd be there in about 20 minutes as frank was walking out to his 1967 dodge rambler he was approached by wayne henley they knew each other and were friendly henley brought frank over to a white van parked nearby and introduced him to coral and brooks they invited Frank to join them at Coral's apartment to smoke some weed and drink some beer. Frank accepted and drove his Dodge Rambler behind Coral's white van. Isn't he? He's 18. Isn't he a little older than Coral's demographic? Oof. After arriving at the apartment, Frank got high and was convinced by Coral to learn a handcuff trick. When Frank's hands were cuffed behind his back, Coral pushed him onto the table and began to torture and sexually assault him. Henley claims that he begged Coral not to harm Frank, but Coral refused and revealed to Henley for the first time that the previous victim Henley had lured to Coral's apartment had not been trafficked. Coral had straight up murdered him. Coral informed Henley that he intended to do the same to Frank. Henley then left the apartment. Frank had a cloth placed inside the mouth and tape wrapped around his head to the point that it covered his nose. You are in such a fucking pickle, mate. Like, you deserve it because you're a piece of sh**. But this guy... How would you deal with this? It's like you're locked in because if you even anonymously tip off the police, he's going to roll over on you because he's going to know you did it. And then you're fucked. So you're fucked if you tell. You've got to go to the cops and cut a deal, right? You've got to go to a, or to, the lo to a lawyer and be like, I know something extremely fucked up. I'm involved in it. I need a deal. And I will give you a child murderer who's had many victims and I will take you to them. That sort of thing, right? That's that's your path out, right? Or at least you got to talk to a lawyer. You got to be like, yo, dude, <laughs> I need help, my dude. Please tell me what to do. 
In addition, a ligature was placed around Frank's throat. However, because the tape covered the victim's nose, he quickly suffocated within minutes before enduring the prolonged torture that was Coral's usual MO. Henley returned the next day to help bury the victim at High Island Beach and to help Coral and Brooks move and dismantle Frank's Dodge Rambler, which had been parked outside Coral's apartment so that the parts could be discarded or sold for scrap. A few months after the murder, Henley swung by Frank's mother's house and asked if there were any updates on her son's disappearance. Henley also accepted some missing persons flyers from Frank's mother, promising to post them, but he dumped them in a ditch shortly after he left the house. Why are you doing that, you fucking psycho? On April the 20th, 1972, Coral, Henley, and Brooks were partying at Coral's apartment with 17-year-old Mark Scott, who for the past several years had hung out with Henley and Brooks, and by extension, Coral. Henley once came over to Mark's place for a house party, and his mother described Henley as the first to arrive and the last to leave. Brooks used to have sleepovers with Scott when they were younger, and on another occasion accidentally shot Scott in the leg. Oh, with a pellet gun. Okay. Sending Scott to the emergency room. <laughs> oh my god, how close range was that? Mark Scott had a juvenile... Oh, one of the grimmest things I remember, like, at school. Someone had, like, a BB gun, and you definitely weren't supposed to have a BB gun at school. And he somehow... He shot someone, or he accidentally shot himself. I can't remember quite what it was. Like, in this part of the hand... You know that soft skin between the thumb and the index finger? And this BB, like, entered into his skin and, like, went down, I don't know, maybe an inch or two, into his hand. And then it was, like, just, like, under his skin in there and it was, like, all bloody. And he had to push it out. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, dude. Grim. Is a pellet gun a BB gun? Is that the same thing? Mark Scott had a juvenile record and was most recently in hot water with the police after being caught carrying a concealed weapon, a knife. Mark had told his parents that he was considering spending a few weeks down in Mexico just to escape police pressure for a while. <laughs> Dude, you just got... Like, what What pressure? is like that you had a concealed... Surely that's an open and shut case. You're going to flee to Mexico because they caught you carrying a knife? That's not a flee to Mexico sort of crime, unlike pretty much everything else mentioned in today's episode. On the night of the 20th at Dean Coral's apartment, Mark Scott resisted Coral's attempts to slap him in cuffs and then pulled out a knife. Scott managed to slash out at Coral, inflicting a surface wound on Coral's stomach. Nice. However, Wayne Henley brandished a gun at Scott, and to quote Brooks, he just kind of gave up. Scott was manacled to the torture board, and Coral set about his usual MO while Brooks and Henley observed. The torture lasted all night. Sometime during this, Coral forced Scott to write a postcard to his parents, claiming that he'd gone to Austin and found a job that paid $3 an hour. The following morning, Coral showed Henley how to strangle a person with a ligature. And according to Brooks, it was Wayne Henley who actually murdered Mark Scott. Brooks claimed that he couldn't remember where they decided to bury Scott's body, whereas Henley said Scott was buried at Highline Beach, but his remains were never found there. Meanwhile, due to the postcard that Coral sent to Scott's parents, police quickly classified him as yet another runaway case. I mean, even if there wasn't a postcard, they'd just be like, <laughs> even if his room was covered in blood, they'd be like, oh, it looks like he ran away. <laughs> another runaway. <laughs> so many. Pass me a donut. Scott's parents doubted the postcard's authenticity, since Scott would never leave for Austin without his motorbike. On May the 21st, 1972, two more youths who were known to Coral Brooks and Henley were lured to Coral's apartment. 17-year-old Billy Balsher had a few years before sold candy door-to-door -door for the Coral Candy Company. Balsher, along with his best friend, 16-year-old Johnny DeLome, had frequently hung out together over the years at Coral's various residences. In addition, David Brooks was known to have sold weed to Balsher. The two boys were walking to the corner store on the morning of the 21st to buy themselves some Coca-Colas when they were lured to Dean Coral's apartments on Shuler Street. This time, the victims were tied to Coral's bed, where they were tortured and sexually assaulted. 
Sometime during the ordeal, Belcher and Delome were forced to write letters to their parents saying that they'd found a job working a shipping route from Houston to Washington and would be back in three or four weeks. Once Coral had finished with the victims, Henley, whom Brooke described as increasingly sadistic, strangled Billy Belcher to death with his bare hands. Then Henley brandished a 22 caliber pistol and turned to Delome and gleefully shouted, Hey Johnny, before shooting Johnny Delome in the head. The bullet did not kill him, and so Henley climbed over and strangled Delome to death while the victim was begging for his life. They were buried at High Island, but Bulger's body was never recovered. Three days later, Bulger and Delome's parents received the letters that their sons had written under duress. Billy's father was a trucker and knew that no Houston to Washington route existed, but the police, as usual, classified them as runaways and offered no help. Man, what are the police actually doing with their lives? This is ridiculous. When Wayne Henley later spoke of his transformation from a reluctant accomplice to callous murderer within just a few short months, he said, quote, At first I wondered what it was like to kill someone. Later I became fascinated with how much stamina people have. I mean, you see people getting strangled on television, it looks easy. It's not. Sometimes it takes two people half an hour. Bro, Wayne Henley, you better be going to the fucking chair, along with Dean Coral and this other Brooks chap. I'd like it if they killed all of you. This is the 70s, right? Where are we? We're in the South, I feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're gonna get executed. That's gonna be a nice ending, I hope. Mama. Sometime in June 1972, Coral Brooks and Henley lured 19-year-old Billy Riddinger to the Shula Street apartment. There, Ridinger was allegedly tortured and sexually assaulted by Coral. However, David Brooks convinced Coral to let Ridinger go. He was unstrapped from the torture board and walked out of the apartment. Bro, what are you doing? Um, that seems like an absolutely insane thing to do, but maybe there's a good reason. Brooks later said, I took care of him while he was there, and I believe the only reason he is still alive is because I convinced them not to kill him. It's unclear exactly what convinced Coral to let Ridinger go, and it's equally unclear why Ridinger did not go to the police afterwards. Um, bro? Theories range from Ridinger being too traumatized by the events and just wanting to put them behind him, to theories about how Ridinger may have been allegedly involved with some of Coral's criminal activities and not wanting to attract police attention. You gotta cut a deal, my dude. Like, that's how it works. Like, I don't know what activities, if it's burglary or even something slightly worse than that, you need to go to the police and work out to get a deal and get these people put away and by put away i mean put away in the ground because they're dead after being executed god i love america they can kill people they'll just kill people yeah america there is no hard evidence either way only speculations from people who knew him Ridinger had remained tight-lipped about the case over the years. Rhonda Williams, Frank Aguirre's girlfriends, said, quote, I can't speak of Ridinger and Dean's relationship prior to that day for legal and personal reasons. Shortly thereafter, Coral's ire turned toward David Brooks. One day in June, the trio was entering the Shula Street apartment. Henley managed to knock Brooks unconscious. Brooks was tied to the bed, and Coral forcibly sodomized him multiple times. To quote Brooks, I begged Dean not to kill me, and he finally let me go. Despite being attacked, David Brooks continued to act as one of Coral's accomplices, albeit more sparingly. According to Brooks, Henley and Coral also murdered one more unidentified victim at the Schuler address. Brooks just walked in and found the victim being tortured, but left again before Henley and Coral murdered the unnamed youth. Yo, um, David Brooks, what the f are you doing? Um, like, you're a piece of sh and I hope you go to prison forever and also get executed. At that point, you gotta go, my man. You gotta go to, like, Lebanon. 
and get plastic surgery and change your face and buy a passport off the dark web or something because your clock is ticking. Like, you're, you can't go to the police because you'll be killed. Like, even if you cut a deal, you're going to prison forever because you've done horrible, horrible things. So you got to flee, my dude. On June the 26th, 1972, Coral moved from Shula Street to an apartment at Westcott Towers. Shortly before midnight, on July the 19th, Coral lured 17-year-old Stephen Sickman, who was just leaving a house party, to his apartment. Coral caved in the victim's chest by hitting him repeatedly with a sledgehammer. It is not believed that Brooks or Henley participated in this particular murder since neither of them ever mentioned it. Stephen Sigmund's body was found in Dee Coral's boat shed, but after remaining unidentified for two decades. In 1993, the body was misidentified as the body of Mark Scott, whose remains were likely buried on High Island Beach, but were never found. In 2009, DNA testing confirmed that the body was in fact Stephen Sigmund. His younger sister, Sandy, said, quote, Learning about all this has been traumatic for me. I've been pushed back to being a 14-year-old girl looking for my brother. I found him, but not in a way I ever wanted to. I always thought I'd find a couple of nieces and nephews and bring Mama home some more grandbabies. On August the 21st, 1972, Coral abducted 19-year-old Roy Bunton, who was walking from his house to his shift at a shoe store near the newly established Northeast Mall. Once again, it's not likely either Brooks or Henley took part in this particular crime. Bunton was gagged, assaulted, and killed by two gunshots to the head. He was buried in the boat shed. However, his body was misidentified in 1973 as that of Billy Bolsher. His body was actually laid to rest by the Bolsher family under that name. In 2010, the body was exhumed, and in 2011, DNA testing confirmed that it was in fact the body of Roy Bunton. So if, if people are going out there and digging up all these graves and stuff and DNA testing people, why aren't they digging up that car park where they think there are even more victims? If they're still interested in doing this, it seems like a good idea to go and dig up like the backyards of the places he lived and the offices and the, the car parks and all that stuff. Why? What, like, no? Just me? To, like, get some closure for the, for the families? His remains were reinterred by the Bunsen family in a private funeral. Billy Bolter's body, which is said to have been buried on High Island Beach, has never been found. On October the 3rd, 1972, Coral and Brooks lured 14-year-old Wally Simono and 13-year-old Richard Hembry into Brooks's Corvette while the two boys were walking to a sleepover at Hembry's house. They were last seen sitting in the vehicle outside a grocery store by another friend who tried to speak to them, but Brooks got out of the car and menacingly told the friend to beat it. Thereafter, the boys were driven to Coral's apartment, and they were soon joined by Henley. Then, Coral, Brooks, and Henley enacted their usual MO. At some point in the evening, Coral attempted to force Wally Simono to call his mother to feed her a bogus story about his whereabouts, but a terrified Simono cried out, Mama, and was immediately pulled away from the phone. His mother listened to some scuffling noises before the line went dead. She called Richard Hembry's mother and was told that the boys were very late and hadn't arrived yet. Wally Simono's mother immediately called the police. If the police are not, like, f***ing on this shit extremely quickly, I'm going to be extremely pissed off. At 7am the next morning, while Coral and Brooks were asleep, Henley resumed torturing the victims on his own. At some point, he put a gun in Richard Henry's mouth to frighten the victim, and it accidentally went off, causing a severe but non-fatal exit wound in the boy's neck. Several hours later, Simon O and Henry were strangled, and that evening they were buried in Coral's boat shed. They're 13 and 14 years old, just a reminder. Sometime around November 1st, 1972, 18-year-old Willard Branch Jr. was hitchhiking between Mount Pleasant and Houston when he was picked up by Wayne Henley, who was driving without a license. Branch was invited to Coral's apartment to smoke some weed, where he was tricked into handcuffs. He was tortured, assaulted, and castrated before being shot in the head and buried at Southwest Boat Storage. His father, Willie Rusty Branch Sr., was an officer in the Houston police force who initiated a search to find his son. Finally! 
It's only it, it has to hit close to home for the police to do something then, does it? However, the stresses of the situation caused Rusty Branch to drop dread of a heart attack only three weeks later, stopping the investigation in its tracks. Willow Branch Jr.'s remains were identified in 1985. If I was, I don't know, like if I know anything about cops and movies and from movies and stuff, if I was Willard Branch's partner, like they go out and do stuff together, right? I'd be like, wait, someone kidnapped his son, and then like, he died of a heart attack because of the stress of his son being kidnapped. I'd be like, that is my sole mission in life. Like all I'm going to do as a policeman <laughs> is track this down. That is just all I would do until I've dextered his fucking ass. On November 15th, 1972, Coral abducted Richard Kepner, a 19-year-old carpenter's apprentice, when he was walking to a phone booth to call his fiancée. He was subjected to the same tortures as the other victims and then strangled to death and buried on High Island Beach. His remains were later discovered there, but because Kepner was older than most of Coral's victims, he was not immediately connected to the case. His remains were identified a decade later in 1983. On January the 20th, 1973, the now 33-year-old Coral moved to a house on Wirt Road in the Houston suburb of Spring Branch. David Brooks lived a block away from him on Antonine Drive. Brooks started dating a neighborhood girl named Bridget Clark. Brooks and Coral also became familiar with 17-year-old Joseph Lars, who also lived on Anton Drive. Sometime around February the 1st, without the assistance of Henley or Brooks, Coral lured Joseph Lars to his residence, tortured and murdered him. Coral then buried Lars' body on a beach in Jefferson County, 75 miles outside of Houston. His remains were found in 1983, but were not identified until 2009, when DNA testing matched it to the Lars family. His sister Barbara said, We had pretty well lost all hope. At least this puts an end to it. It's still sad, imagining what happened. On the 1st of March, Coral moved into an apartment on South Post Oak Road, but shortly thereafter moved to a house on 2020 Lamar Drive, which had been previously occupied by his father, Arnold Coral, who was now 57, still residing in Houston, and had remarried and just moved into a new home. Meanwhile, in March 1973, in an apparent attempt to distance himself from Coral, Wayne Henley moved in with his father at Mount Pleasant, about 250 miles north of Houston, and got a job at a gas station. Bro. He's like, I don't like this life anymore. I'm just going to move away and start a new job. And he, can you imagine just being like, uh, at some point there's going to be a knock in the door and they're going to strap me to a gurney and put a needle in my arm. <laughs> Tick tock. You got to go to Lebanon, my man. Around the same time, Henley applied to the US Navy, though he was ultimately rejected on June 28th. Maybe that's his plan. Maybe that's how he's going to get to Lebanon and then desert. During this time, there was an apparent alleged hiatus in the Candyman murders. There are a few possible explanations for this. The first is that Coral is known to have suffered from a medical condition in early 1973 called testis, where fluid collects in the testicles, causing the scrotum to enlarge. <clears throat> that does not sound pleasant. In some cases, it can cause pressure, discomfort, and even pain, making it difficult for the sufferer to have sex. This may have eliminated Coral's ability to assault any victims for a few months. Eventually, however, he got the fluid drained, and the medical condition alone does not account for the full duration of Coral's alleged hiatus. The second explanation is that Coral was actually carrying out multiple murders from February through May with the assistance of Brooks and Henley, and thus we have no clear information on them. Indeed, roughly a dozen teenagers who fit the victim profile went missing in Houston during this time, and they may well have been murdered by Coral. What the fuck? It's like a few months. What was the hiatus? How many months? February through May. It's like four months. And how many a dozen teenagers went missing? What the fuck is going on in Houston? Is that normal? How many people can go missing? In 1973, 
Wayne Henley moved back into his mother's house in Houston while he waited for his ill-fated Navy application to come through. He resumed hanging out with Brooks and Coral. The three of them were regularly seen at Hearts, a fried chicken restaurant near Hamilton Junior High, talking primarily to seventh graders. During this time, Coral also began showing up to the now 17-year-old Wayne Henley's house to visit. Oh my god, this dude's so... Wait, he could potentially... Like, because he's young when he was doing all these horrible crimes. He could... That could be a defense, right? Henley's mother and siblings got creeped out by Dean because he'd rarely speak and would just sit and stare at them while the family chatted. Yeah, it's f***ing creepy, that's why. Nevertheless, they tolerated Henley's strange friendship with the 33-year-old man. And at the beginning of June, Dean Corral's alleged hiatus abruptly came to an end. Henley later claimed that he felt he had no choice but to participate in the subsequent killings. Quote, I couldn't leave anyway. If I did go, I knew Dean would go after one of my little brothers, who he always liked a little too much. Um, well... Oh God, you gotta, you gotta go to a lawyer, my dude, because you gotta get this guy off the streets and cut a deal. Even though I don't like, I the deal for you that I would be like, if as the prosecutor or whatever, is I'll be like, here's the deal: life without parole. And they'll be like, wait, that's not a good deal. It's like, oh yes, because the other option is death. And then you'd be like, cool, finger him, finger him, spend the rest of your life getting bullied in prison, and then that's it. Killing spree. On the afternoon of June the 4th, 43-year-old widower James Lawrence was getting ready for his evening shift in the mailroom at the Houston Post when his 15-year-old son Billy asked if he could be given a ride to the corner of 31st and Yale Street. Billy Lawrence was a friend of Wayne Henley, who sometimes sold him pot. When James Lawrence caught his son smoking it in his bedroom, he slapped the boy and dragged him by his long hair into the bathroom and made the lad flush it down the toilet. <laughs> I'll be like, give that to me. I'm going to take it and flush it down my toilet. <laughs> okay, Dad. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about like Like, if I found my kids smoking pot, I'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> It'd be a bit hypocritical to be like, no, definitely not. Not allowed. Although if they were drinking underage and stuff, I don't know, I'd still be like, well, just don't, don't go crazy. Like, I definitely drank underage. It would be a bit hypocritical to be like, naughty, naughty. I mean, it depends on the age. I guess. I don't like talking about my kids because this is an episode all about murder. Of kids. Oh. Oh. After that, Billy Lawrence seemed to settle down a bit, got a part-time job, purchased a bike, and got a girlfriend, although somewhat weirdly, she was 20 years old. How old is this dude? 15 years old. Dude, you ca- <laughs> that is, that's not somewhat weird. That's very weird. A 20-year-old woman with a 50... 50- if that was the other way around, it wouldn't be somewhat weird. It would be like, what the f***? And I still think it's what the f***. What are you doing as a 20-year-old woman dating a 15-year-old? Don't do that. Then Billy's bike had gotten stolen, necessitating his father to give him lifts here and there. When James dropped off Billy on the corner of 31st and Yale, he said to his son, I love you, I'll see you in the morning. James frequently told his children that he loved them ever since their mother had died. A few hours later, at 10pm, James Lawrence received a phone call at work from his son. Billy asked him if he could go on a fishing trip with, quote, some friends. James assented and told him that he loved him, and Billy replied, I loved you too. Oh, God. James Lawrence, 43-year-old widower. And this is his... He lost his wife and now he's... Uh... But Billy's fishing buddies turned out to be Wayne Henley, David Brooks, and Dean Coral. Billy Lawrence was taken to 2020 Lamar Drive that night and subjected to three days of torture and sexual assault. During the ordeal, Coral forced Billy to write his father a postcard saying that he'd gone to Austin to work a job admin offered and would be back at the end of August to start school. Then the victim was strangled and buried at Lake Sam Rabin, approximately 150 miles northeast of Houston. 
When James Lawrence received the postcard on June the 9th, he was anxious and called the police. But like the police, James assumed his son was being truthful about going to Austin, that he was basically a runaway, and waited for him to return. On July the 2nd, Wayne Henley called James Lawrence and asked if Billy was home in order to gauge the situation. James replied that Billy would be in Austin until the end of August. On the evening of July the 4th, while James Lawrence was doing a night shift, Coral Brooks and Henley broke into his house, stole some guns, cameras, a stereo system, and some family mementos. James Lawrence did not connect the burglary to his son's disappearance at the time. Why the fuck are you stealing those family mementos? I know why, but you shouldn't be doing that. It's like, it makes... I mean, the police are obviously ridiculously beyond incompetent in today's episode, so it's not like they're going to be like, oh, that's weird. But any competent police would be like, why are they stealing these family photos? Maybe that's connected. Maybe there's something weird going on here. I don't know. Dozens of children seem to be going missing. Maybe do something, police, you fucking clowns. On July the 6th, Wayne Henley began driving lessons at Coach's Driving School in Bel Air, a town six miles from Houston. On his first day, Henley befriended a fellow student, 15-year-old Homer Garcia. Oh yeah, you can learn to drive really young in America. <laughs> it's like, what's he doing learning to drive? He's 15. It's like, we can't learn to drive until we're 17 in the UK. You can't learn to drive until you're 18 here in Czech, which is late. Getting your driver's license is like, yes, I can go anywhere I want. God, what a time. The next day, July the 7th, they continued chatting. That night, Homer Garcia called his mother to let her know that he'd be spending the night with some quote-unquote friends. Henley lured Garcia back to 2020 Lamar Drive, where he was tortured and assaulted for several hours before being shot in the head and chest with a 22 caliber pistol. Garcia was placed in the bathtub while Coral and Henley watched him bleed out. He, too, was buried at Lake Sam Rabin. A mere five days later, on July the 12th, John Sellers, aged 17, was shot four times in the chest with a rifle, bound in a way similar to the other victims, and possibly sexually assaulted before being buried at High Island Beach. There is some ambiguity whether Coral, Brooks, and Henley murdered Sellers. None of them directly mentioned killing him, but they did not deny murdering him either, and Henley did later lead police to his grave, which was near six other burials at the location. But Sellers was killed with a rifle instead of a 22 caliber pistol, like all the other victims, and he was the only victim to be buried fully clothed. A truck driver later came forward, claiming that he had spoken to Henley at High Island Beach on July the 12th, offering to pull out a car that he assumed belonged to Henley that was stuck in the sand. Henley told the truck driver that he didn't need help, as he had two friends with him who would help push the car out. The vehicle matched the description of the one driven by John Sellers, which was later found having been torched in Starks, Louisiana. The two prevailing police theories are that one, Henley Brooks and Coral had driven Stella's own vehicle out to High Island to bury him, or two, that Sellers had spotted them at High Island, burying an unidentified victim, and had been murdered on the spot. Given the fact that Sellers was murdered by a rifle, which Coral could have easily had in his possession, and that he was buried with his clothes still on but with traces of male ejaculate on them, ugh, no. The latest scenario that Sellers was killed at High Island Beach after catching the trio in the act seems the more likely one. However, it's also distinctly possible that Sellers was buried at High Island by a completely different murderer and was just lumped in with the Candyman murders by sheer proximity to the other bodies. <sighs> well, can't they DNA test that, the, the ejaculate, and see if it belongs to one of these three psychos? Shortly after the murder of John Sellers, 18-year-old David Brooks married his now pregnant girlfriend, Bridget Clark. Oh my God, Bridget. What have you got yourself into? whom had been seeing since January. The honeymoon removed Brooks from Coral's company for three weeks, during which Henley acted as Coral's only accomplice. On July the 19th, 1973, Jane Bullshire, mother of Billy Bullshire, who had disappeared in May 1972, gave Billy's younger brother, 15-year-old Tony Bullshire, some money to go for a haircut. No! The other kid? 
Tony headed out on his own. Oh my God. If I was Jane Bolcher and my kid had gone missing and my, how old is he? 15 year old wanted to go get a haircut. I'll be like, like literally less than a year later. I'll be like, no shot. I'm coming with you. We're going by car or I'm sending you with someone. Tony headed out on his own and was intercepted by Coral and Henley. Tony knew both of them, just like his brother had done, and frequently hung out at Coral's places of residence over the years. As such, Tony was easily lured by Coral and Henley to 2020 Lamar Drive, where he was tortured, sodomized, and strangled to death. He was buried at Lake Sam Raven. How? How have we never heard of this? How is this guy not as famous as Bundy or Gacy? Because this is just beyond it. The boy's father, Billy Jean Balcher Sr., reported Tony missing, but the boy was immediately classed as a runaway, just like his brother. Wah! The fuck? Two of their children had disappeared without a trace in just 14 months, and the police would do nothing. Tony's remains were not identified until 2010, so the Balcher family remained uncertain for decades where Tony's body was. Tragically, a year later, in 2011, the remains that were thought to be Billy Boucher's and buried in a plot bearing his name were proven to be those of Roy Bunton's instead. The Boucher family had gone decades not knowing where Tony's body was, and soon after finding him, they discovered that it was in fact Billy's remains that had never been found. On July the 25th, 1973, Coral and Henley struck again. Charles Cobble, aged 17, a high school dropout with some kind of undiagnosed anxiety disorder and a budding drug addiction. Cobble had gotten married a few months earlier, in March, to a 15-year-old girl named Deborah. Getting married at 15, what are you up to? <laughs> Imagine myself at 15. I was an idiot. He worked part-time as a waitress. Cobble had gotten her pregnant. The couple moved into the Ben-Hur apartments across the street from Wayne Henley and was later joined there by Cobble's parents and sister. The family occupied a row of four apartments on the second floor overlooking the pool. At the beginning of July, Deborah left, citing Charles's drug addiction and emotional volatility. Cobble sought solace with his best friend. 18-year-old Marty Jones, an outgoing lad who was the perfect antidote to Cobble's anxious, shy, and retiring nature. But Jones was also a delinquent and a drug dealer who frequently dipped into his own supply and who had gotten hooked on barbiturate speed, pot, and possibly heroin and cocaine. Oh my god. <laughs> frequently dipping into his own supply. And he's not like, oh, what do you deal? Everything. <laughs> he was also known as a burn artist, where he'd take people's money for drugs but never deliver or else would return something of extremely low quality. Um, how long are you going to be able to work as a drug dealer? No one's ever going to trust you. Jones had actually stayed with the Cobble family back in 1972, but his erratic and aggressive behavior eventually got him thrown out. But due to Deborah's leaving, Jones was suddenly back in the picture. At 10 p.m. on July the 25th, Cobble and Jones were seen walking near the Ben-Hur apartments in the company of Wayne Henley. But something seemed off. They were walking in single file along 27th Street, with Cobble out in front, Jones in the middle, and Henley bringing up the rear. Multiple witnesses said Cobble looked distressed, but neither Cobble nor Jones dared speak to them, and Henley seemed vaguely hostile. Indeed, Wayne Henley had a concealed gun and was marching Cobble and Jones under threat of death towards a vehicle where Coral was waiting. They were taken to 2020 Lamar Drive and tortured all night. The next morning at 9.50am, the phone rang at the Ben-Hur apartments. Charles Cobble's sister, Emily, picked up. It was Charles. He asked to speak to Vern Cobble, their father. Vern was handed the receiver. Daddy, I'm in serious trouble. Charles said in a panicked voice. What is it? Vern asked. Is Marty with you? He's here. There's some people who think we've done something to them. I have to have a thousand dollars. I don't have that kind of money, Vern said, but I'll just have to figure out how to raise it. Well, if you can't do it yourself, maybe talk to Mr. Rogers. Maybe he can help. This was bizarre because Vern didn't know anybody by their name. It may well have just been a reference to the TV children's entertainer that a disdainful Coral or Henley 
forced Charles to say. Then there were some voices in the background that Vern couldn't make out, and Charles came back on the line suddenly sounding deflated, like he'd given up hope. Well, I'll tell you later where you have to have the money. And Charles hung up. That's a very weird call. So it seems like he's been... Does his dad think he's been kidnapped? It's a pretty sloppy way to try and extort someone for money. Extort? What's it called when you kidnap someone? I guess extort. Vern immediately called the police and was offered a patrol car to come round. He refused and demanded to speak to an investigator. A homicide officer eventually came on the line and told Vern that there was nothing he could do because no actual crime had been committed. If someone else had phoned Vern and said he was holding their son, then the police could act. As it was, the officer speculated perhaps Charles Cobble was just trying to scam some money and run away to California. Vern was put through to missing persons who told him, quote, We don't look for missing people. We take the information, and if we come across them, we let you know. <clears throat> Not good. Vern hung up and went to the bank took out the $200 he had in his account and got a loan for a further $800 to make up the full $1,000, which is roughly $7,000 in today's money. Then the Cobble family waited anxiously by the phone. Days passed. No one ever called. By the third day, the Cobble family came to the conclusion that Charles and Marty were probably dead. Indeed, the ransom call was just a smokescreen to th- our oh, ransom not a extortion, ransom, thank you, it was just a smokescreen to throw off the Cobble family once Charles and Marty had disappeared and to make them think that the two young men had been killed by some of Marty's disgruntled drug associates. He was a burn artist, after all. Coral and Henley had no interest in collecting the money. Instead, shortly after Charles Cobble hung up the phone on the morning of July the 26th, the torture and sexual assault began anew. Coral and Henley tied Marty Jones to a chair and forced him to watch as they went to work on Charles Cobble, knowing full well he would be next. After a few hours, they shot Cobble twice in the head. Then Jones was tortured and assaulted for several hours, whereupon Henley decided that he wanted to strangle Jones to death. After half an hour of throttling the victim, Henley wasn't able to kill him, so Coral stepped in and did it himself. That evening, Henley took the bodies of Cobble and Jones to the boat shed and buried them. The same day, Dean Coral phoned his mother, Mary, who was still living in Colorado. He told her that he needed to get out of Houston and start a new life somewhere. Mary assumed he'd run up some debts and wanted to escape his creditors. She told Coral to come and stay with her in Colorado. Around the same time, Wayne Henley started talking to his friends about moving to Australia and becoming a homesteader, saying that rural Australia is a lot like the Wild West. David Brooks, meanwhile, had a wife and child on the way and began rationing his time with Coral. Though the police weren't anywhere near to investigating the slew of disappearances, much less suspecting any of them of murder, the trio were getting jumpy and wanted to part ways, moving on to the next phase of their lives. For Coral, this probably meant exporting his particular brand of terror to Colorado. It is more debatable whether Henley and Brooks would have felt the urge to torture and kill once Coral had left. On Friday, August the 3rd, 1973, 13-year-old James Dramala spent the day collecting empty bottles to sell at a local convenience store in Pasadena to scrounge together enough change to take his girlfriends in the new James Bond film on Sunday. By the early evening, Dramala had told his mother that he wanted to ride down to the convenience store to collect his money. Elaine Dramala told him that she didn't want him riding his bike around the neighborhood after dark. James assured her that it had only been gone a few minutes. His parents last saw him riding his yellow bike down the street. This is the sort of thing, and it's like now, because I do this show, like before, I'd be like, yeah, of course you can pop to the store, no worries. Now I'm like, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> and I know statistically it's really unlikely, but it's also, it's like one of those things where it's like, the chance is very low, but the potential harm is enormously high. Just outside the convenience store, James drove past Dean Coral and David Brooks, who were sitting in Coral's white van. They talked to Dramala and told him they had a few empty bottles in the back of the van that he could have for free just so they could get rid of them. 
Coral gave Jamala the bottles, and the 13-year-old headed into the convenience store and sold his collection. Coming out again, Jamala approached the white van to thank Coral and Brooks. It was then that they told Jamala that they had an even larger collection of bottles back at their house at 2020 Lamar Drive, which he could have. They loaded Jamala's bike into the back of the van, and they all drove off together. After arriving at 2020 Lamar Drive, Brooks and Coral gave James Dramala some pizza, and they chatted with the boy for roughly 45 minutes. Then James phoned his father and told him he was invited to a party at a nearby house in Pasadena and asked if he could stay. His father told him sternly no and to be back home in 20 minutes before hanging up the phone. But James Dramala wasn't permitted to leave. He was manacled to the torture board for the next several hours. According to Brooks, this time the nature of the torture was so gruesome and severe that Dean Coral wore a leather apron to protect his clothes from blood spatter. Then Dramala was strangled with a cord and buried in the boat shed. His yellow bike left leaning against the shed wall. The Twist, Part 2 In the two months between June the 4th and August the 3rd, 1973, Dean Coral, Wayne Henley, and David Brooks had murdered eight victims, averaging one a week. Previously, it had been one a month. Things were escalating, and Coral knew that he couldn't keep a lid on his activities for much longer. Things were bound to spin out of control and attract the attention of the police sooner or later. <laughs> Dean seems to be overestimating the police's capacity for doing anything. On August 5th, Dean Coral's mother, Mary, phoned her son and asked where he'd been all day. Coral replied that he'd been ducking someone's calls. Mary inquired when he was going to come and see her in Colorado. Dean replied that he'd be there on the 1st of September. Mary asked if Coral was going to bring Betty, the single mother whom Coral had dated a few years back and with whom he was still having monthly catch-ups. Mary, who was still in firm denial about her son's homosexuality, attached far too much significance to Dean's relationship with Betty, despite the fact that they'd broken up several years ago. Coral replied, I don't think so, with two little boys and all. Mary then asked, Are you going to tell your dad you're leaving Houston? I'll tell him. Coral replied and hung up the phone. This is the last time that Mary ever spoke to him. Two days later, on the evening of August the 7th, 1973, Wayne Henley lured 19-year-old Timothy Curley, one of the many boys whom Coral had kept in his orbit the past few years, to 2020 Lamar Drive. Once they arrived, Curley, Henley, and Coral drank beer and huffed paint fumes. Okay. David Brooks was not there that night. He was home with his wife. Around 12 a.m., Curley announced that he was hungry and wanted to head out to get some food. Curley was not yet intoxicated enough to be easily manacled to the torture board, and Coral and Henley preferred not to risk a violent confrontation with a 19-year-old if they didn't have to, during which a relatively strong victim might escape, injure one of them, or be prematurely killed in the struggle. And so, Henley and Curley departed, telling a frustrated Coral they'd be right back. They drove in Curley's Volkswagen to Henley's house, where they planned to grab some food. Parking nearby, they heard some noise coming from down the street from the house of Rhonda Williams. Rhonda was 15 years old. The previous year, she had dated 18-year-old Frank Aguirre before he had disappeared on the way to her house after his shift at Long John Silver's in March 1972. Rhonda was extremely distressed by Frank's disappearance, and a year later she was still given to periodic spasms of despondency. Both Rhonda and Frank had been friendly with Wayne Henley. In fact, back in March 1972, Henley had begged Coral not to murder Frank Aguirre. Since then, Henley had felt a little protective of Rhonda Williams, occasionally telling her that Frank was probably not coming back, leading her to suspect that Henley knew something about Frank's disappearance. <laughs> Henley, that is very close to talking about your crimes. Henley and Curly found Rhonda alone at her house, being comforted by her friend Ricky Wilson. Earlier that evening, Rhonda had gotten into an argument with her allegedly alcoholic father, Ben Williams, and he had allegedly beaten her. To top it off, she had recently sprained her ankle while goofing around with her friends on the hood of Ricky Wilson's car. Rhonda was miserable. 
She vowed to run away and was trying to figure out where she could go. Henley, half cut on beer and paint fumes, offered to bring Rhonda with him and Curly back to Dean Coral's house. Rhonda agreed. Thereupon, Henley went into his own house, woke up his mother, and told her that he was going to spend the night with a friend, Timothy Curley. Henley grabbed some food from the fridge, and he, Curley, and Rhonda took off in the Volkswagen. With both Henley and Curley being fairly intoxicated, a party atmosphere prevailed in the vehicle. They drove around Houston for the better part of an hour, only returning to 2020 Lamar Drive at around 3 a.m. on August the 8th, where an impatient Dean Coral awaited them. When Coral saw that Henley had brought a girl back alongside Curley, his intended victim for the night, he became angry. Coral muttered to Henley that it ruined everything. An intoxicated Henley explained that Rhonda Williams had fought with her father and didn't want to go home. Thereupon, Coral's mood seemed to change. He calmly offered Henley, Curley, and Williams some beer and pot. On top of this, Henley and Curley began huffing paint fumes again. Coral did not partake in anything. He just sat there, staring at them. By approximately five in the morning, Henley, Curley, and Williams had all passed out. Coral got up, used a knife to strip Timothy Curley naked, and proceeded to bind his hands and feet. He then bound the hands and feet of Wayne Henley and Rhonda Williams without disrobing them. Coral gagged his three potential victims and wrapped several layers of tape around their mouths. All three teenagers lay there, trussed up and still unconscious on the living room floor. Coral went off to the bedroom and laid down some plastic sheeting before returning and waiting for his victims to wake up so that he could have maximized his pleasure in torturing them. Well past daybreak, Wayne Henley was the first to regain consciousness. Coral noticed and removed the tape and gag from Henley's mouth. The 17-year-old immediately begged Coral not to kill him. Coral replied, quote, Man, you blew it bringing that girl. But I'm going to fix you now. I'm going to kill you all. But first, I'm going to have my fun. Coral walked over to Rhonda Williams and kicked her repeatedly in the chest and stomach, saying, Wake up, bitch. Rhonda briefly regained consciousness, only to see Coral drag Henley to his feet, shove a 22 caliber pistol in his gut, and haul the boy into the kitchen before she passed out again. In the kitchen for the next 30 minutes, Wayne Henley begged for his life. He reminded Coral of their friendship, which had now spanned three years, and how he had loyally assisted him with so many of the murders, and without compensation. Because, indeed, after the first one, Coral hadn't paid Henley for any of the victims that had lured to Coral's place. Then Henley said, if Coral would let him go, he'd help torture and kill Timothy Curley and Rhonda Williams, shouting, quote, I'll do anything you want me to, Dean. Anything. Coral was convinced. Oh my, this is all unraveling for you, Coral. He undid the bindings on Henley's arms and feet and cut loose what remained of the tape around his face. They returned to the living room, where Rhonda and Timothy lay still unconscious on the floor. Coral said that he was going to torture and sexually assault Timothy, while Henley was expected to do the same to Rhonda. The 15-year-old girl regained consciousness to see Henley standing over her and Coral behind him with a 22 caliber pistol in his hand. Then Coral proceeded to drag Timothy Curley by his feet into the bedroom. Curly regained consciousness, and his muffled screams could be heard through his gag. Henley huffed some paint fumes to numb himself to the situation, then knelt down and whispered to Rhonda, Everything's going to be all right. Then Henley proceeded to drag Rhonda into the bedroom. She noticed plastic sheeting on the floor. Henley and Coral manacled the two victims at opposite ends of the torture board, with Curly facing downward and Rhonda facing up. Coral handed Henley a knife and ordered him to cut away Rhonda's clothing. Coral turned to Curly and said, Don't you worry, boy. I'm just going to take a look up your anus. Cause you some trouble. Jesus Christ. Henley deliberately took his time cutting away Rhonda's clothes while Coral laid the pistol down on the table and started to strip himself naked. Coral then climbed on top of Curly and began to forcibly sodomize him. Henley took the knife and cut away the tape around Rhonda's face and removed her gag. Half dazed, she asked, Is this for real? 
Yes, Henley replied. To which Rhonda responded with a question that weighed a metric ton. Are you going to do something about it? Years later, Wayne Henley said at that moment he was hit with a massive wave of remorse. Quote, her boyfriend had been killed. Dean was trying to kill her. Her friend, whom she trusted implicitly, turned out to be a monster. So who's the victim? The belief that she trusted me is what gave me the push I needed to do something. Henley asked Coral, can I take Rhonda into the other room? She doesn't need to see all this. Coral, in the middle of sexually assaulting Curly, ignored him. Henley grabbed the 22 caliber pistol from the bedside table, pointed it at Coral, and shouted, This has gone far enough, Dean. Coral looked over, spotted the gun, and began clambering off of Curly. Henley shouted, I can't let this go any longer. I can't let you kill all of my friends. Coral began to walk toward Henley. Kill me, Wayne, he said simply. Henley backed away a few paces and did not pull the trigger. Coral continued toward him. He sneered and said, You won't do it. Wayne Henley pulled the trigger and shot Dean Coral square in the forehead. But the small 22 caliber bullet did not pierce all the way through Coral's skull into his brain. It merely stunned him. Coral continued to move toward Henley. The teenage boy fired again twice. He hit Coral once in the shoulder and once in the chest, with the bullet piercing his left lung. Coral staggered past Henley out of the room and slammed into the wall in the hallway. Henley fired three more shots at Coral, hitting the naked man once more in the shoulder, twice in the lower back, rupturing his guts. Coral slumped to the floor, turned his face to the wall, bled out, and died. Fucking finally. Now, I'm sorry, Wayne, but you also need to be killed. <laughs> Jesus Christ. What the fuck is this episode? The Aftermath Henley's immediate reaction after killing Dean Coral was to feel pride. He thought perversely that Coral would have been proud of him for acting so decisively in that situation. Then Henley freed Rhonda and Timothy from the torture board. Both Henley and Timothy burst into tears. Timothy repeatedly thanked Henley for saving his life. Rhonda sat on the bedroom floor for several minutes, still in shock. Then she got up, saw Coral's body in the hallway, and began to scream. Henley came over and calmed her down. Rhonda and Timothy got dressed in the tattered remains of their clothes, while the three teenagers discussed what to do next. Henley wanted to let Coral's body just be discovered. Timothy Curley, unaware of the scope of Henley's complicity in Coral's crimes, reasoned that the whole thing happened in self-defense, and that they should call the cops. Henley, dazed and half-intoxicated, agreed. I mean, because Coral's dead, Henley has... A There's not a lot tying him to this stuff, is there? He seems like there could be an exit path for him here. But I don't think there is, because obviously we're getting all of this information from someone, and I get the feeling it's Henley testifying like mad in order for a reduced sentence. At 8.24am, Wayne Henley phoned the police and said, You better come here right now. I just killed a man. Address is 2020 Lamar. The three teenagers waited outside on the porch for the cops to come. Henley placed the pistol on the driveway away from him. As he sat there, Henley considered going on the run, but dismissed the idea. Then he turned to Curly and said, You know, if he wasn't my friend, I could have $200 for you. At the time, Curly didn't understand the meaning of the statement. The police arrived, and Henley told them that the body was inside the house. They got Henley, Curly, and Williams into the patrol car and confiscated the pistol that was still on the driveway. Then one of the cops stepped inside the house and saw the body of Dean Coral lying face down, his nose pressed against the baseboard, his body covered in blood and smears of it along the wall. The cop went into the bedroom and saw the torture board and the plastic sheeting. Scanning the rest of the house, the officer spotted various weapons, nylon cords, handcuffs, glass rods, and a 17-inch dildo. Coming outside again, the officer confirmed that Henley was the one who pulled the trigger on Coral. 
Believing that Henley had acted in self-defense, rescuing his two friends, the officer nevertheless had to arrest Henley. Well, the officer read him his Miranda rights. Henley shouted, I don't care who knows it. I have to get it off my chest. All three teenagers were taken down to the station for questioning. For decades, Rhonda Williams has felt grateful to Wayne Henley for saving her life. Timothy Curley, on the other hand, was shocked when he found out Henley's role in Coral's crimes, including luring Curley to 2020 Lamar Drive to be tortured and killed in the first place. In 2009, he said, If I ever met Wayne again, I don't know if I would shake his hand and say thank you or beat the shit out of him. I would definitely say the latter, because he is a terrible piece of shit of a human being. Henley was promptly interrogated, and after going over the details of that morning's killings, he began to tell a much darker story. He said that Dean Coral was a predator who had tortured and murdered teenage boys for years. Henley said that he and another boy were tasked with procuring victims for him. He said that bodies were buried at various locations. The boat shed, High Island, and Sam Raven Lake. He began listing off the names of the victims that he could remember. When the officers, doubtful of Henley's testimony, ran the names, they discovered, to their shock, that they were all missing persons. At 6pm that evening, the officers drove Wayne Henley out to Southwest Boat Storage and began an excavation that ultimately would wind up lasting several days, with 17 bodies being recovered. But back on the evening of August the 8th, the press soon arrived, and Henley made several statements to them about Coral's crimes and his involvement. Henley then asked one of the reporters if he could use his car phone, yes, they already existed back then, to call his mother. Henley said, Mama, it's Wayne. I killed Dean. It's my fault. I can't help but feel guilty. Like I done killed those boys myself. I caused them to be dead. I led them straight to Dean. Footage of this confession was blasted across the 10 o'clock news. That same evening, David Brooks went with his father down to the Houston police headquarters and admitted to having procured victims for Dean Coral, but flatly denied that he ever participated in the subsequent murders. But on the morning of August the 9th, Wayne Henley contradicted Brooks's story by giving an eerily calm, open, and full confession about the complicity of them in the torture and murder of the victims. Without batting an eye, Wayne admitted to killing nine of the victims himself. That afternoon, Henley and Brooks were taken out to Lake Sam Rabin, where police recovered four more bodies. That evening, back at the station, under pressure from his father to come clean, David Brooks admitted to having been present at numerous torture and murder sessions, but continued to deny that he ever directly tortured or murdered anyone himself. The next day, on August the 10th, Henley and the cops headed out to Sam Raven Lake again, where two more bodies were uncovered. That afternoon, both Henley and Brooks went with the police to High Island Beach, where they discovered four more bodies, bringing the confirmed total to 27, making it the highest death toll from serial killings in recorded American history at the time. Once authorities found all the bodies they believed Brooks and Henley had described in their statements, further excavations were called off. Joseph Lyle's body was later found on a beach in Jefferson County in 1983, bringing the total to 28 victims killed between 1970 and 1973. But most investigators have concluded that the death toll was decidedly higher. Henley and Brooks went in front of a grand jury for the first time on August 13, 1973. Over the course of the next month, Henley was indicted for six counts of murder, and Brooks was indicted for four. Henley was not charged with the murder of Dean Coral, which the grand jury ruled as self-defense. The district attorney wanted the oddly detached Wayne Henley to undergo psychiatric examination. This would determine whether he was fit to stand trial, but the move was opposed by Henley's lawyer, who claimed it would violate his constitutional rights. The defense attorney later changed his mind, however, and asked for the exam. The request was denied, and the attorney's own damn arguments were thrown back at him. Henley's case went to trial in July 1974, with the prosecution calling for life imprisonment, but openly lamenting that Henry's age prevented them from calling for the death penalty. Okay, yeah, because he was underage. Which, I mean, yeah, life without parole. You can't execute someone who committed crimes when they were a child. Um, so, life without parole. Come on. 
The defense called for a not guilty verdict on the basis of Henley being a minor at the time and supposedly being coerced by Coral to commit these crimes. Um, the just following orders defense? Not really that strong. The defense's arguments were undermined by the sheer brutality and sadism of the acts Henley had described in his earlier confessions to police, which turned the jury against him. His attorney did not call any witnesses, and Henley himself did not take the stand. The jury only needed to deliberate for an hour and a half before finding Henley guilty. They sentenced him to 99 years for each of the six counts of murder, totaling 594 years in the notorious Huntsville prison. Henley appealed the verdict and conviction, citing a mistrial primarily because the jury had not been sequestered and they were therefore prejudiced against him by lurid media accounts. In 1979, Henley was granted a second trial, wherein the defense team tried to get Henley's confessions to police, detailing all the brutality and sadism ruled as inadmissible. This was overruled, and the defense spent the next nine days attacking the credibility of the confessions based on Henley's own disturbed state of mind at the time. But the details of Henley's complicity again poisoned the jury against him. <laughs> yeah, because he's a fucking monster. And the verdict was upheld. Elmer Wayne Henley, now aged 68, remains imprisoned, having been moved to the Mark Stiles unit in Jefferson County, Texas. However, he is next eligible for parole in October 2025. Oh, so he spent basically his entire life in prison, which is fucking where he belongs. Don't parole this sick fuck. He deserves to be in prison and die there. Meanwhile, David Brooks's trial took place in February and March 1975. Although Brooks had been indicted on four counts of murder, he was brought to trial for only one, the brutal torture and murder of 15-year-old Billy Lawrence at the beginning of June 1973. Henley had also been convicted of this one the previous year. Why are they only doing... Why is... This guy was doing stuff with him for longer. Lawrence had been tortured and repeatedly violated for three days from June the 4th to June the 7th, one of the longest of any of the known coral victims. While Brooks had not actually strangled Lawrence to death, he had actively participated in the torture sessions over those three days and been involved in the victim's abduction and had stood by as the victim was killed. By the Texas legal definition of the time, he was as guilty of murder as Coral and Henley. Brooks's initial claim to the police about not being present at any of the killings would work against him with the jury, as did the written confessions of Wayne Henley, which asserted that Brooks was present at all but a handful of the murders. Ultimately, Brooks was found guilty and sentenced to 99 years in prison. Brooks remained emotionless as the verdict was handed down. Brooks's wife Bridget burst into tears and Brooks's daughter Rachel, born in 1974, learned nothing about her father until she was 17. She visited Brooks once in prison, but was killed in a car accident shortly thereafter, coming home from a high school prom. Oh. Back in 1979, Brooks appealed the verdict, trying to claim that during his two confessions to police had not been properly informed of his legal rights, but the appeal was thrown out. Brooks spent the rest of his life in the Texas prison system and died from COVID-19 at the age of 65 in a makeshift prison ward at the Galveston Hospital on May the 28th, 2020. And I think we can all just say to that, oh no! Dean Coral escaped any kind of formal justice and accountability for his crimes. His funeral was attended by 40 people in August 1973. Jesus, why did you just throw him in the sea? It was just a 15-minute service closed to the media. There was no music. Due to Coral's military service, an American flag was somewhat perversely draped over the top of his casket. How about if someone's a fucking horrible piece of shit, you don't do that? His mother Mary maintained to her dying day that Dean Coral had not committed any of the murders of which she was accused. Instead, she thought the murders were committed entirely by Henley and Brooks, and Dean Coral had been murdered when he discovered what was going on. To quote, he was not a sex maniac or sadist. The people who knew Dean, who worked with him, who raised him, will never believe these terrible accusations. To David and Wayne, you can lie, plan, and plant evidence, and shift the blame onto one who cannot defend himself. But you surely know that your days are numbered. 
whether it is behind bars or walking the street. Oh, Mary, your power of denial is fucking extraordinary. Dean Coral's ex-girlfriend, single mother Betty Hawkins, maintained a similar view and claimed that just days before Coral was killed, he told her that he was driving to Colorado and asked her not to tell David Brooks that he was going. Hawkins remembered Coral as, quote, one of the kindest men I ever knew. If he had something and someone needed it, he'd give it to them. So far as I knew, he didn't have any special hobby, unless it was helping people. An interesting choice of words there at the end, isn't it, Betty? Also, massive power of denial. Likely all of this was symptomatic of a deeply tethered state of denial from the two women who had otherwise struggled to justify caring for a man who turned out to be an unspeakably evil monster. Yeah, it's got to be hard because you're like, oh no. Yeah, I totally fell for this. And he was a mega psycho. He was just wearing that mask. Ah, uh, yeah, I get it. I get it. As for the justice meted out, there was actually very tenuous evidence regarding the extent to which Brooks and Henley were involved in the Candyman murders, and virtually nothing beyond their own confessions. But it is clear that the juries, and indeed the entire shell-shocked Texas justice system in the 1970s, were eager to see both young men behind bars for life. And let's face it, this was Texas. Many people would have preferred both young men to pay a visit to old Sparky, but since then, numerous psychologists and commentators have debated the extent to which the Coral managed to groom and brainwash Brooks and Henley into being procurers, torturers, and killers. Yeah, I, uh, I, I don't believe they deserve the death penalty because they were minors and they were groomed, but I'm sorry, but you can't torture and kill people and not go away to prison forever. It's just you can't. You, you can't. Brooks began his association with Coral at the age of 12. Henley met Coral at the age of 15. Brooks was many times sexually abused by Coral. There's no evidence that Brooks actively murdered anyone, though he definitely partook in torture. Henley, on the other hand, after a short while, seemed to embrace the sadism and bloodlust of the killings. But to what extent is a traumatized and manipulated teenager culpable for having his mind contorted by an adult and not immediately coming to his senses? Both Brooks and Henley were terrified of Coral. They both admitted to the police that they had actually, at one point, discussed killing him. Ultimately, Henley did come to his senses and managed to save the lives of both Rhonda Williams and Timothy Curley in the process, but only after dozens had died. Alternatively, both Brooks and Henley displayed clear psychopathic traits when they were examined by mental health professionals, particularly Henley, who showed no emotion throughout his trial, cheerfully chatted with journalists, and has shown very little sign of remorse in the decades that he's been in prison. It is possible that Coral chose his accomplices, fellow psychopaths and sexual sadists. This isn't so far-fetched. Approximately 1 in 100 people are psychopaths. Approximately 1 in 10,000 people are full-blown sexual sadists. Houston had an enormous population of 1.3 million in 1973, and there is some circumstantial evidence that indicates Brooke and Henley weren't the only young men Coral involved in his crimes. Allegedly, Billy Ridinger, for example, had come to trials with a paper bag over his head, with aisles cut out, refusing to utter a word. He was only later identified with journalists. Yet if others, like Ridinger, had been involved in torture and murder, then surely they would have been implicated by Henley when he was spilling his guts to police in 1973. Yeah, I feel like that would probably be the case. It seems like he just confessed to everything and talked to the media and everything. The question remains, and likely always will, did Coral poison the minds of two innocent young boys by sucking them into his twisted world, or did he see something in them that he also saw in himself? In 2001, a documentarian visited Wayne Henley in prison and asked him whether he was a serial killer. Henley replied, No, Mom, I'm not a serial killer. I'm an accomplice to a serial killer. I was a stupid, ignorant child. Yeah, but you can't torture and murder people, even if it's by association, and not spend the rest of your life in prison. 
It's just how it is. I will leave you to weigh those words and judge the case for yourself. Dismembered Appendices Number 1. The official death toll for the Houston mass murders is 28. However, we know that Dean Coral committed a number of murders without Henley and Brooks, who are our only witnesses to his deeds. We've only uncovered a handful of the murders Coral did solo, and then only because Coral had told Henley and Brooks about them. When Houston authorities reached their expected total of 27 bodies, they stopped all excavations, despite Henley insisting there were more. Given the number of young men who fit the victim profile and went missing in Houston between 1970 and 1973, Dean Coral's kill count might be as high as 42. This would account for the long hiatus where Coral appeared to stop killing. Serial killers generally cannot stop. Number 2. We have strong reason to suspect that Coral began killing victims long before 1970. In one interview, David Brooks claims that Coral had told him about a murder he committed in 1968. And we know that from 1965 to 1968, when Coral ran the candy factory, he was already aggressively pursuing underage boys and burying quote-unquote defective candy in his office. Oh yeah, this was all before. Go dig up the office. Go dig up the parking lot. And an area later converted to a parking lot. It seems sensible to have these places excavated. If we apply the average frequency of Coral's kills as far back as June 1965, when Coral returned from military service and cross-referenced them with missing persons cases, then the kill count rises to as high as 100 potential victims. Furthermore, in 2015, an Indiana man found a child's femur in the crawl space of the house where Coral lived with his grandmother from 1959 to 1962, so it's possible Coral got started as a serial killer as far back as 19 years old, meaning that his kill count could go even higher than 100. You need to excavate that parking lot and the office. Like, what is going on? Just get it done. Shh. Number three. Coral's record for the highest death toll in American history at 27 victims was surpassed by John Wayne Gacy with 33 victims in 1978. Indeed, Gacy was watching news coverage of the Houston mass murders in 1973 and later claimed that that's where he got the idea for the handcuff trick with which he also restrained his victims. However, we don't know how long Coral operated. His total might actually blow Gacy's out of the water. Number 4. Of the 28 bodies police ultimately discovered between 1973 and 1983, only one of them remains unidentified. The body found in the boat shed dressed in stars and stripes swimming trunks, a peace sign shirt, and black leather cowboy boots, colloquially known as Swimsuit Boy. He was murdered in 1971 or 1972. He had dark hair and spinal bifida, a birth defect that affects the spine and basic locomotion. Three missing people's cases from Houston fit that profile. One of them, 15-year-old John Harmon, phoned his parents claiming that he was being held for money before he disappeared, much like Charles Cobble did. Another credible anonymous tip claims that the name of the victim is Robert French. The investigation continues. Number 5. A Polaroid picture of a visibly distressed young boy manacled to Coral's torture board, taken in 1972 or 1973, was found among Henley's personal possessions. The boy in the picture does not resemble any of the known victims of Dean Coral, including Swimsuit Boy, whose broad age, facial reconstructions, and hair color do not match. Henley himself says that he does not remember who the boy was. Look at the picture online at your peril. No, 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 no. And don't include it in the video, video editor. It's grainy and low quality, but apparent distress of the boy in the photograph makes my skin crawl. I don't advise it. Number 6. Numerous witnesses identified Coral, Henley, and Brooks burying bodies at Galveston Beach between March and May 1973. However, police have never excavated the area. Police? What? Is there a reason that they're not going to excavate these bodies or something that I'm missing? Because it seems like we know where there's lots of bodies and police just don't want to go, go digging. It seems like then we'd close cases, no? Number seven. 
Dean Coroller once told Henley that he was associated with a Dallas-based sex trafficking ring, but Henley had subsequently thought this was a lie. However, in August 1973, around the time that the Candyman bodies were being dug up, investigators uncovered a Dallas-based sex trafficking ring of John David Norman, who ran the so-called Odyssey Foundation, a national network trafficking thousands of underage boys, servicing up to 100,000 clients across the United States, including a long list of celebrities, politicians, and government employees. It was sent by Dallas police to the State Department, only for the latter to suppress its contents. Holy sh! that is some conspiracy-level shit right there. A subsequent police raid in Houston in 1975 on a place connected to the Odyssey Foundation uncovered numerous pornographic photographs, including pictures of 11 of Coral's victims, so it is possible that Coral might have actually had a connection to trafficking. Number 8. Another person possibly connected to John David Norman was John Wayne Gacy. Norman had fled to Illinois in 1973 after Dallas police rumbled the Odyssey Foundation and set up another ring under the name of the Delta Project. Gacy was not only well-connected with the Illinois Democratic Party, he also frequently boasted about having powerful underworld connections. So is it possible that the rabbit hole goes much deeper than just Coral and Gacy being two isolated serial cases with similar MOs and victim profiles? They may have had links to a network of predators that included the rich and powerful. Not so different from the rumors that swirl around Jeffrey Epstein and his associates in our own day. And that's where we end today's utterly brutal and long episode. Thank you for being here, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.